People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Greenwashed. You're with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And you can always text us on 2057 or email us at the rate inbox. Uh, at the rate reality check dot radio. Good morning, Don. Morning, Jasperate. Had a good um, good weekend and good last week. Apart from a bit of a stormy midweek last week, but anyway, you're looking fresh. You're looking fresh. A bit of climate change. Yeah, a bit of climate. We always talk about the weather, but isn't it interesting? Talk about something slightly different. How the political posturing's just ramping up a gear or two. There must be an election coming. There must be. There yeah. must be. Gosh, there's a there's a lot of action there, and, and the media are starting to rev up. So um, let's hope RCR is all over it. I hope we are. I sh- I know for sure we are. Are we going to cut them any slack, or are we going to uh, just let them dig their own holes? <laughs> <laughs> Do I look like I'm going to cut anybody any slack? Nah, no, no, no. no. You're, you're looking like you're quite ready for a fight. Uh, but anyway, hey, look, I've really enjoyed the last week or two on, on RCR listening to um, replays effectively, although sometimes I get to watch, uh, listen to the breakfast show with Paul and um, I like hearing Fazan uh, Arani on Money Talk and I like hearing The Legal Hub and I like hearing Tech Tuesday. So, yeah, I, you know, it's not all about greenwashed. I really like uh, I like some of the the interviews that are happening and I mm. encourage other listeners to get on there and, and listen to them too because you learn a lot. You do. And uh, if you have joined up as a foundation member, you would have received a Richard morning dose of some RCR bites. So mm. that's a good way of starting your day. I think sometimes the, just the sheer volume of information out there gets overwhelming. So mm. this one, email allows you to a bit of pick and choose, though, as always, you're spoiled for choice. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think people are getting overwhelmed by so much information. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get a bit, a bit sort of blasé about it all. So hopefully, putting it into narrow, bite-sized bits, we're going to um, capture a few more. But isn't it interesting? Um, 
Jasper, one thing I did mean to ask you, do you feel like you're the country's better off than it was six years ago? I mean, we're spending $56 billion government more than we were six years ago. Do you feel like the country's $56 billion? Can you see it? Can you feel it? Down the drain. Mm-hmm. Down on some blue. And so in the end, really, it's fiscal irresponsibility, I think, is what we're talking about. And, you know, I just wish there was some more accountability. But, you know, these people will, uh, depending on the election, they may be banished to the other side uh, and they won't feel bad about it. I mean, I couldn't do this sort of stuff. I'd feel really, really guilty if I'd let the country down this much and spent so much money uh, that is the value proposition isn't that obvious. I just legislated theft doesn't have any repercussions, does it? <laughs> no, and I had this, I had this little dream uh that you know, you get all these people that say you shouldn't do this, they can't do brigade, you can't do this, you can't do coal, you can't have cars, can't have carbon dioxide, can't <laughs> have cows, and yet they can have everything they want and they live a comfortable life. Well, yeah, there's a few islands south of New Zealand that could sort of be set up for them. You know, they could go without everything they've got and then see how life is. Um, anyway, that's You're my, rant for, that's my Sar- rant for the day. You are at a sarcastic, scathing best, Don. <laughs> yeah. 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 I see that we, we ask for feedback. I think it's time we read out a few of these. Uh, got someone from, who is this? Kelly. My Danish brother looks for Vesta on the Nazi offshore wind farms. At any one time, a third are out of action due to the salt. Constant maintenance is required. They are not efficient. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense uh, that that the salt is very corrosive on mm. anything, salt winds and salt, salt atmosphere. Um, but... You know, in the end, uh, what did Brian Leyland tell us? Uh, wind farms on average, or wind turbine on average, is about 38% um, capacity. So if it's a four megawatt wind turbine, on average, it's going to be generating about 1.52 megawatts um, over a day. So you need you need lots of them. If we're going to go without gas and, and coal in this country, uh, we're going to need lots of turbines, all rusting. And how do we make how do we make the parts of those turbines? Oh, there's lots of people um, starting to question that, and all the bits of uh, rare earth metals and things, and minerals that are in them. I yeah, that's an argument. I I actually find that whole argument fallacious. They're either mm-hmm. really useful or they're not. Um, mm. And we don't want slave labor, mining, um, mm. cobalts and things. I accept all that, and we certainly don't want children in mines that are unsafe and doing any of that sort of stuff. But when it comes to talking about a carbon footprint or a you know a footprint of something, mm. it it just it's all about to me it, it it is all about efficiency. You use the resources you have the most efficient you can, and the market will tell you what is the best use of that 
of that mineral or element. And if it's not making wind turbines, it's not making wind turbines. I would suggest the best use is probably making cement and building in um, building turbines to put water through. Mm-hmm. But uh, who knows? Who knows? It's not for me to say. No. Nah. Tom writes in, love the show. Thank you, guys. You might find this interesting. Former Greenpeace director Patrick Moore pointing out that even if man-made climate change was a thing, excess cold kills 10 times more people than excess heat. He also clearly shows how the data is manipulated. I have seen this one, Tom. Yeah. And yep, it yeah. is a, indeed very interesting that uh, and I, it is very natural, isn't it? Cold would be a lot more miserable life. Well, I think what? civilizations died out because of cold more than uh, any died out because of heat, Jaspreet, in the past. Mm. The nomads had to move where it was warmer. They didn't move to where it was colder. Was, yes. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. Everyone, be it a bird or human beings, you migrate to. Yeah. 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 And so uh, the other side of it, um, admittedly, you've got to be careful, although we want to see all sides of the story. But there is so much good stuff on, say, YouTube about, uh, you know, Patrick Moore. He he presents a lot of um, good video clips on there. Um, no different to how we've talked about in the past few months, uh, how um, Tom Sheehan or William Happer and co, they put um, videos up every so often, and they're really, really good. But, yeah, so it is about being objective and, you know, listening to all sides of the story. Uh, but, yeah. So thanks for that feedback, Tom. And you might like to read this one. Oh, this, and the, uh, other, the other one from Brian. Yeah. One from Brian. Yeah, he's put together a single-page document detailing uh, how the whole thing's a lie. And, you know, I've read the document, uh, Brian, and thank you very much for it. Can't argue with any of your, your content. Um, just not sure how it will be dispersed, but we'll see if we can do something with it because it's it certainly is pertinent. And thank you for your, your interest. Yeah. And the main thing of that was he was talking about the atmosphere, nitrogen, mm. 78%, oxygen, mm. 20 argon, less than a percent, and carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, all the things we are twisting ourselves into pretzels over account for 0.04% or thereabouts of the atmosphere. Thank you, Brian. Mm. And someone has advice for Bryce? Don. Oh, yeah, that was unique, wasn't it? Um, this, was. this, this guy is uh, Clive, Clive, is it? Clive, yeah. yeah, he's come down and he's written an email uh, saying that he was part of the team that took down the Shell Oil Company with a boycott of all their petrol stations in Europe for one week in the 90s over human rights abuse in the Delta region of Nigeria against the Agani peoples. He thinks he could offer Bryce and, uh, and Laurie and Mal and Co at Groundswell some good ideas. Um, in with regard to the boycott of countdown. Yes, yes. So we've got his number. We might, uh, well, will we pass it on to Bryce? I think oh, we should. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that, Clive. And uh, what else have we got? We have got uh, a good Southern man coming up soon. We for have. first guest of the day. Yeah, another another man of the land. Or, you know, last week we had Finya. This week we've got Jason Herrick, who's a Northern Southland uh, dairy farmer. and He's had one heck of a ride in recent years, and he's um, he's going to tell us about it. Yeah, someone who I've admired for a while and who I've uh, got to meet in person just last month. So Don and I will be back after a break and cat uh, of a Jason. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, 2057.
or email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jess Breed. Uh, another week's gone by, but we still have to have these interviews where we get people from the land telling their story. And a person who I've seen in a suit and in gumboots is Jason Herrick. Now, he's been nationally profiled, actually, with uh, his output on the state of the dairy industry and environmentalism in Southland, and also talks about um, mental illness inside the farm gate. So, Jason, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What what what's motivated you to become a dairy farmer, and a bit of your background? Yeah, thank you very much, Don. Um, uh, what motivated me to become a dairy farmer? Um, I was actually uh, as a young fellow. I grew up in Lumsden, Northern Southland, and uh, my father was a mechanic and owned the local uh, garage there. And uh, all of my friends and my grandfather and uncle were far sheep farmers, so. I had a huge interest in farming at that time and um, spent most weekends and, and school holidays with uh, with my uncle and friends on farm. And when I decided to leave school, uh, I went and done a course through Telford. Um, and in the Telford course, it actually put us across all, all entities within farming. Um, and out of that, I actually uh, decided I enjoyed dairying a whole lot more. Um, so I quite enjoyed working with the cows and and uh, then it started from there pretty much. And I joined the Federated Farmers Cadet uh, course uh, scheme uh, way back in the in the mid-90s and uh, when that was up and running. And um, I really uh, hit the ground running from there. Um, moved from Southland to Canterbury and uh, spent uh, a good old 22 years in Canterbury uh, dairy farming up there um, before moving back south to take up an opportunity on a farm that I'm currently still on down here. So... Um, I've got a uh, family of four kids and a, and a beautiful wife, um, and I actually have a, a new grandchild now. So um, yeah, life's looking pretty good uh, on that front. <laughs> well done. Isn't it interesting uh, how you can talk about your story uh, so eloquently? I mean, there's lots more to it, I know, but I, I've observed your your progress through the uh, farming um, sort of advocacy groups over time, and I find you a very able um front man for for farming and you've had to face some pretty big hurdles in recent years with regard to the attack on farming uh from the regulator and environmentalism you know, how's how's that played out for you and and yeah what what effect does it have on you really yeah so right right through the years like um i was a class myself as a southern man right pretty hard as nails and and uh, call a spade a spade and uh, over the years, uh, throughout farming, um, the landscape's changed quite a bit, both in political realms and uh, actually on the land itself. And uh, I've enjoyed farming. I love farming for many, many years. And, and over time, the public perception of farming started to uh, sort of get to me a bit the way it was portrayed in the, in the, um, in the media and uh, in the public eye. Uh, and it did weigh heavily on me. And, you know, I would uh, kick myself in the in the ass and just say, hey, you know, you've got to get on with this, um, get on with what you love doing and, and so on. And, and you know, over time um, that built to, to a point where um, it put me into a uh, depression 
um, and I had a mental breakdown. Um, it got to the point where I was very suicidal um, and, you know, life wasn't looking so great. Um, and that was all due to the perception, and that happened uh, all come to a head in uh, 2018 in a very wet uh, autumn, winter and spring, um, and I had a, a very, very um, uh, tough evening one night, and the look the next morning wasn't that flash, right, and that's where the public perception comes into it, and uh, the day went pretty much downhill from there. And uh, ever since then, um, uh, since I've come out the other side, uh, I've managed to um, get a grip on myself. I've managed to uh, find out what makes me tick, um, and I've got my passion for farming back um, more on an advocacy level. Why? Because I because of what's happened to farming over the years and the and the constant attack that we now have um, on farming itself, and um, and the misperception of it that's out there, right? Um, so after uh, I um, spent six months after my mental breakdown um, repairing, so to speak, um, talking to the right people, um, getting myself back on track. Um, I uh, come across some activism in 2019 right out in front of my farm. And unfortunately for them, they chose the wrong farmer to do it on. Um, and they were out there trying to take photos of my cows. Seven o'clock at night, I don't know, I'd try and take photos of because it was dark. And uh, that was, you know, so we had a bit of a heated uh, confrontation. Um, Jeff Reed and uh, and Matt Coffey and Co. Um, and uh, it led from then on. Uh, we got together with a group of other farmers and formed a group called Ag Proud um, and set off on a mission around the country. Um, you know, and that mission was to promote positive farm practices because there was a lot of good stuff going on within farming, right? And uh, we all know this, um, but it wasn't getting out in the public eye. Only the negative stuff was was actually getting portrayed. And and that's what put me into my um, into my uh, um, mental breakdown, and uh, I wasn't going to have a bar of it anymore. So I reached out and uh, put my story out there, um, exactly what happened to me over the years, and the, the whole reason for doing that was not only um, to put that out there, but was to help people, right? Recognise because when you're in that mental state of mind and you're in that frame of mind, um, you think you're the only one. You think you're the only one in that space that's getting attacked um, if the whole world's thinking of you like that. And I just wanted to put it out there that when you're in that frame of mind, you're not the only one and let people know. And my mission was to help one person. If I could just help one person, um, we could, you know, um, save one life, so to speak, um, and, and move it forward from there. Um, and then um, coming out of that, I decided to get into Federated Farmers. Why? because I've seen what um, Jeffrey Young and Bernadette Hunt were doing um, in standing up against this poor regulation, which was leading to poor perception, um, which was putting farmers, you know, under more pressure. Um, and I thought to myself, well, maybe if I can help one person through Ag Proud, I could help multiple people through Federated Farmers. So that's where it sort of stemmed from why I got into advocacy. And um, and I I still deal with depression on a daily basis. Don't get me wrong. And I have high levels of anxiety, but I know what my coping mechanisms are now. And uh, I'm on a on a health journey uh, myself, where um, I'm getting very fit and healthy in the top two inches as well as the, as well as the body. I'm changing my whole perception on uh, on my world. Um, and you know it's helping me in the advocacy space to see things a lot clearer um, for what it is. Um, and I, I'm a research person. I love research, and I do a lot of research and around uh, things I don't know, 
um, to get a better grasp and a better uh, handle on things, especially in the political realms, right? So I speak to a lot of politicians and get a gauge on what's going on in the political sense. And uh, I do believe in, 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 in myself that I do have a real good handle on the way politics works now, um, which can help me in the advocacy space and stand up for farmers even better. So, um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to the future and, and what more I can provide and, and help the farming sector out on. Brilliant. Thank you, Jason. Now, I must say, listeners, I recently met Jason, though I followed you and your work for a while. And this was at Tuatapri at a mental health awareness event uh, where you spoke very eloquently, as did Craig Higgins. And mental health is not something spoken about, certainly not by blokes, certainly not by men who are, I, I mean, I can vouch for my husband. To get him to talk is uh, probably far tougher than uh, anything else I can think of if things get hard. But you guys spoke very honestly, very forthrightly that day. And I, for one, I'm extremely grateful seeing what's happening in the rural space. But the last three years, Jason, and I will ask about this because I know you've not, as you told me before the interview, nothing's off the table and you call things out as they are. The last three years have not been easy on us, anyone, have they, be it rural or be it townies? Absolutely not. And um, the last three years have been an absolute debacle in my mind from the top down. Um, the the Politicians made an absolute hash of the last three years and didn't take into regard um, people on the ground. Now, one thing I do uh, lobby with politicians all the time, and I have this, this discussion, uh, particularly with our local ones, is when politicians make a decision on something, I would like them to put at the forefront um, the human state of welfare and the outcomes of it. The what-ifs. Start thinking about the what-ifs. I know common sense is no longer a part of our DNA because health and safety took that away. Um, you know, we're not allowed to think for ourselves anymore. But when they start making these decisions at a top level, we need to need to realise and understand what the implications will be from the ground. And the, the only way to do that is reach out to the people on the ground and find out what makes them tick. And, you know, if this was put in front of you guys, how would you guys, you know, deal with this? You know, and the whole COVID situation, in my mind, and the way the government dealt with it um, was a test on the human race as far as I'm concerned. Um, where I see that coming from is I think it was a test to see who would conform and who would follow instruction. And, you know, I don't believe that the, the numbers that the government tell us um, are actually the true factual numbers um, because of the uh, um, mitigations they put around or the criteria they put around those numbers. Um, you know, when they say to everybody, hey, you know, we had over 90% of people got the vaccine in this country, um, and, and when you actually dive into it, it was um, eligible people, and that word, key word was eligible. Now, what did eligible mean? When I'd done my research and I did a little more, more digging on it, Eligible come from whoever had visited a hospital and a doctor within the previous two years to COVID turning up. Yeah. That was the people that they took their statistics on. So 90% of the people that have visited a doctor or a hospital had got the vaccine. Didn't take out to, into account anyone else who hadn't been to a doctor or a hospital. So, you know, that's where they got their numbers from. And that just that's just wrong. And they were just trying to do it out of full, con you know, to gain full control. Um, and see who would conform, right? And I uh, I use that analogy a lot in the farming sector um, over the years, lots in the changing landscape in the farming sector from individual farm owners to corporatisation. Um, governments love corporates, right? They love corporates. Yeah. Why? Because they can control corporates. 
And um, that, to me, that's the way that it feels that we're going at the moment. And the last three, three years was a testament to that. Let's try and put the pressure on as many people as we can to get them to conform. If they don't conform, we need to come up with a new plan. Um, but, you know, it just woke my, my and opened my eyes up to completely what's been happening in the, in the rural sector. They love corporatisation in the farming sector because corporates can be controlled and they can do what they want. Completely. And listening to you speak, it's very reminiscent of when we had Bernadette Hunt here. She spoke about the same thing. She says the very community I, you know, worked so hard for to get the kids hub and everything on. Suddenly I was a pariah among those and going to town was an ordeal. And yeah, that that is certainly something I'll never forget. I, for one, because of my stance, was unable to travel for three years. I had yeah, lost some people who were, you know, within family and one could, just couldn't go. But moving on, they now seem to have decided that we are going to use the same tactics where climate is concerned, the very same that they used over COVID, don't they? Yes, they are. And uh, again, I'm a research person. I love doing my research. And um, nothing makes sense what they're coming up with, right? Um, I'm not a climate change denier um, Mm. because climate change is always happening, right? It's changing all the time. Mm. And um, what we we throw throw at it, um, I'm not sure whether it alters it or not. Um, I'm a sceptic, and um, they're basing a lot of their uh, findings and a lot of their facts on models and and, and predictions um, on what? Science is not absolute. Science is, is, is scepticism, you know, and for them to make policy on science is wrong because science is not absolute. Absolute is fact. Science is not fact. It can be argued on on both sides of the fence. So, you know, for them to put things in place and policy in place and taxes in place um, on on science, which is not, you know, it's not absolute, is is just absolutely ridiculous to me. And it's just money grabbing. And yeah, it, it's it's making the population conform to what they want. Well, if you've read a, an IPCC report, uh, even just the um, AR metrics, uh, sorry, AR four, four, five, or six metrics report, it would do your head in. Um, there isn't. It's all. It, while while obviously very intelligent people have put papers up by the hundreds. How you get anything more than subjectivity out of it, um, as opposed to people trying to make rigorous political policy out of it, uh, seems uh, odd to me. I don't see how it works, and of course it doesn't work, and that's why we're all up in arms about it. Because clearly, if it was robust and right. There wouldn't be any dilemma, would you? You'd know you're doing the right thing. So uh, you use the word fact. I think um, more like fable is what uh, what we're faced with here. So, but isn't that interesting, Jason? Just listening to you, farmers herd sheep, herd uh, cattle, um, herd goats. You know, we herd stuff, but the humankind got herded the most of anybody in the last three years, and it was so damned easy. And I still have friends that I um, liaise with, have drinks with, who don't see it. So how how are we going to change that? How are we going to get people to be far more sceptical than compliant? Because they, they were instantly compliant. They were put into this fervour of fear. Uh, but not many have forgiven um, themselves for it. They seem to want to dig deeper and say, oh, nothing to see there now. Don't want to look back. How you? How do you think we can carry on from this and get our get our power base back? We had a lot of uh, good friends and and families divided over this, and relationships were broken. Um, families were completely torn apart. 
um, just just speaking from my experience in, in my local community here, um, because everyone decided to conform, uh, not everybody, sorry, there was a large percentage of people conformed, um, I was very heavily involved with my community. I was on just about every committee and board known to man in my local community and the local golf sports clubs and community centres and, and so on in schools. Now, that completely isolated me from the rest and I got kicked out of my local squash club, I got kicked out of my local golf club, I got kicked out of everywhere. wasn't allowed in anywhere, right? And um, since then, I've now left every single one of those organisations and sports clubs and I get asked often, oh, oh, when are you coming back? Well, I'm not. I'm not coming back. Why? Why would I? If something like this happens again, I'm going to be kicked to touch again because I'm not going to conform to what the government tells me to do. And um, and they're like, oh, oh, really? I said, yeah. And I was doing a heap, an absolute heap, and they didn't realise how much I was doing until I was gone. But they were quite happy to kick me out of the buildings and I had to sit outside. They said, oh, I can come play golf, but I've got to sit outside. Really? Are you kidding me? Um, so, yeah, they, they lost out big time um, on the community on that front. But going forward, how do we get, get past this? Um, most people in this country are sheep if they get the can do, a, a certain carrot dangled in front of them, right? And um, the government keeps dangling those carrots and those carrots just keep getting further and further away from these people and they just keep following like a herd of sheep. Um, I, I've seen some great analogies over the last three years with, uh, um, I think it was Jacinda uh, portrayed as a horse leading a whole heap of sheep away and that was uh, Jacinda leading New Zealand, you know, and I mean, I don't want to, I'm not a very nasty person when it comes to that sort of stuff, but that analogy really hit home with me. That's exactly what was happening in this country, right, little Bo Peep or uh, the Pied Piper leading the rats out of town, you know, and it's just, yeah. Um, but what's happened um, in, in recent times with the re resignation of Jacinda, um, I think she knew accountability was coming in a large scale and she decided to scarf a ship and, um, and left New Zealand high and dry. Well, and that's the problem, isn't it? Accountability. Uh, the, aside from the human damage, uh, it for me, it's all about money in many ways. Uh, the, the fiscal irresponsibility in this country. We've spent 35 years recovering from 1985 only to have it squandered in a certain amount of days, really, or months. And there's no one worried about it. There's, yeah, they talk about uh, inflation and they talk about the budget and they talk about this and that, how we're going to build all these new roads. They've just squandered 35 years of getting back on track and they did it so quickly. And they don't appear to have any, what's the word? Uh, there's a word beginning with C. I can't think of it. Uh, contrition. They don't seem to feel contrite about it at all. Uh, and they're just going to move on. She moved out. There'll be others move out. The sinking ship will see them gone, but they'll all get us in a cure somewhere else in the planet, and uh, they'll all be happy. And they've left you and us um, with the debt. How's that? How's that responsible? That isn't responsible. It's not principled. So, I'm I'm heartened to hear that you've um, you've got a positive attitude for the future. I'm of the opinion that people like you are going to hold the the province together. Uh, you know, I'm feeling quite good as an older guy that there's young people coming through and doing this stuff. Um, but you know, the anxiety, the abuse. We'll go back to that stuff, the regulatory machine coming at us inside the farm gate for farm plans uh, and all sorts of consents. 
what's the upshot? I mean, where's the win on any of this for for anybody except the payment of money into the regulator? What does it achieve? What does it achieve? It achieves more money in the government's coffers, and that's that's what the main aim is here, right? Um, and they see uh, the agricultural sector as a complete cash cow. And if they've got con- full control of the cash cow, they've got full control of, of New Zealand. You know, you control the, the two main entities in the country being food and water, you've got full control. You control people because we can't survive as a human race without food and water. Um, with uh, the regulation, where, where it's all going um, is, is just mind-boggling. Um, the amount of regulation that's coming at us now is, is ridiculous. I know um, Federated Farmers themselves have submitted over 370 um, submissions on various um, policies coming through the regulatory ship um, in the last three years. You know, 370, that, that's just insane. Um, <laughs> that, that's the sort of regulation that's coming at us. And, you know, I get asked often, what do I enjoy about farming these days? Well, the one part I enjoy about farming is working with the animals in the land. But that's about 20% of my time now. 80% of my time is taken up with regulation, compliance, health and safety, staff management. The list goes on, right? And it's just absolutely a full freight train coming at us. Um, And it is scaring people out of this industry. I talk to farmers on a weekly basis who are ready to put their farms on the market, who don't want their kids to come into this into this um, sector, um, who are encouraging them to go elsewhere, either overseas into a, or into a different trade, um, because they do not see a future in this. And that's playing right into government hands. So my answer to them is, please hang tight, please hang in there. We are a traditional New Zealand family-owned farming country, and that's where we need to remain. We need to fight off this, this regulatory train we need to fight off the um, corporatisation continuing um, because, you know, if we don't, the country is going to be just a full control um, cesspool of corruption. It is indeed. I heard the word somebody said to me, it is a case of asking farmers to comply till they die. And and I, I, I couldn't agree more. More recently, I've heard somewhere in Southland and ANZ here, ANSCO had a farmers meeting that was... Uh, one of the speakers there was Vengelis Vitalis. He's a Deputy Secretary, Trade and Economic. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website lists him as uh, currently a member of the World Economic Forum Trade and Investment Action Group and a member on the steering committee of the World Economic Forum Climate Trade Zero Initiative. And wonder of wonders, this gentleman was out somewhere near Gore talking about the fact uh, to these farmers that uh, the red beet industry, sunset industry now, you guys need to ship up or ship out. It is hard to believe the level to which these these bureaucrats have infiltrated. And you are, you know, you are astute where politics is concerned. We don't seem to have an opposition, Jason, do we? Because most farmers seem to think, go from red to blue and it's all done and dusted. We are in the clear. I don't think blue is going to be any better than red because they sat in Wellington and told us the direction is going to stay the same. Where Vangelis is, is concerned, um, I've, sp- I've listened to him speak three times now live, and um, he is a puppet, a guinea pig, uh, promoting um, a bigger sense um, out there and trying to get people to conform to their way of thinking. Um, I don't agree with his approach and his philosophy. Um, and he's been put on, on, on 
stages in front of room full, rooms full of farmers, especially at the uh, PINS conference that Feds holds every year. Mm-hmm. And um, we get told that, you know, we must do this or we're going to m- lose out on this. this. This crap that they come at us all the time trying to hold us to ransom um, is just rubbish. You know, the, the good thing about, I mean, there's two good things. Uh, one good thing about technology these days, and there's, there's a lot of bad things about technology these days, um, is we can now keep in touch with our our fellow farmers overseas and our and our consumers overseas, right? So we can see at the fingertip exactly what our consumers want overseas, and they want the best quality product at the cheapest price. But mm-hmm. people like Vangelis comes in here, and that and they're telling us the totally the opposite. If we don't conform to this, we're going to lose this, this, and this. It's a lot of crap, um, you know, from what's actually coming back from around the world. And where I say that the the technology can be bad as well. You know, they talk about climate change and, and uh, global warming and so forth and these extreme weather events. It's because of the technology now we're more aware of those extreme weather events because back in the 1950s or mid-1900s, the only way you found out about a weather event on the other side of the world is when it arrived on a newspaper on a ship that sailed six months beforehand. You know, mm-hmm. and whereas technology now you can get it in split seconds. You know, I'm a common sense approach type person. And I just look at things black and white, and to me, that's just common sense. Like, seriously, the writing's on the wall there. You obviously have to be completely naive to the world or what's going on, or stupid. Mm. Well, and of course, the, of course, the IPCC has just come out and said there is no signal um, for any of those major events like floods and uh, and and winds and hurricanes and the like, but there is a small signal on heat. Uh, even that's uh, slightly overstating it, I would say, but... Yeah, you're right, Jason. Everything's in real time now. Uh, there is no one who can escape. But just going uh, for a moment in defense of Vangelis, um, who I've known for 20 years as well, um, he's just peddling the narrative. He's been trained to peddle. Yep, it's no different, to, no different to the sheep story that we've mm. just talked about. So uh, it's it's not pleasant having to. Uh, he's clearly a very professional person, very, very well researched and, and organized in his thoughts. But we don't agree with them anymore. The globalist agenda is not something that you or I or anyone likes. And that's the nub of it. Whereas he has been trained to be part of the globalist agenda, as have mm. all New Zealand trade ministers. They think that's the way to go. Otherwise, otherwise, there'd be some parliamentarian in Wellington saying, we're going to stand up against this globalization. Not one of them are. No, they're all. Yeah, and, 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 and sorry, my last point is ask them to dollarize the game. And they can't. For all no. their box ticking, there is not one dot. Fonterra would say they could, but I've never seen it yet. And I speak to many farmers who say, oh, they talk about 10 cents a milk solid, a kilogram of milk solids for ticking all these boxes. So that's all guessing. It's all guessing. Anyway, that's my rant. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's great that you can uh, see the woods for the trees. That's the key thing for me, uh, listening to someone like you and Bernadette and, and these others, uh, because it do, we do need people to, to stand up and at least have the discussion and at least put the wood on people. But it seems that we just have lost how to do that in, in, in recent years. So um, I'm happy that you're doing it. Um, going back to... Daring. I know we're we're probably getting toward the end of this interview, but uh, going back to daring for a moment, staffing does seem to be a big issue that farmers talk about now. Uh, are you finding that? Uh, and why 
as I understand it, the best employers certainly reward their uh, employees very well. They uh, often have a house on the farms and they supply them with a whole lot of other stuff and there's fringe benefits. But we're told that uh, yeah, there's, it's still hard to pull people into dairying. Do you think that all links to the public perception that's being uh, peddled by media? Just put the industry down. 100% I do. Um, you know, it puts the pressure on the industry, right? And uh, it allows the industry to conform. Now, um, dairying has been overtaken by and overrun by corporates. Um, and corporates, in, in my mind, don't care um, about the land or the people. They don't. They put profits over everything. Um, profits first, right? And that's just my, in my experience on, on dealing with corporates. Um, because, you know, I've asked the question of, and when I've worked for corporates over the years, what, what are your goals? What are your goals for the farm? First thing on the list is always profit, right? And uh, and then nothing else after that, pretty much. Um, staffing in the in in the dairy sector is is a real tough one right now. Um, we had a huge problem in the in the early two thousands to the late two thousand and ten, where we had our education sector pushing a lot of our um, delinquent youth into the dairy sector because they didn't want to deal with them at a schooling level, right? Encouraging them, you can go and get a dairy farm job for 40 grand a year. And, and so, to be a farmer in this day and age, you need to be intelligent. You've got to be able to be good with numbers. You've got to be good with science and you've got to be good with working with other people. Um, and if you don't have those skills, you, you can't go to the top in dairy farming. And uh, we rely very heavily on imported, uh, on um, immigrant um, labour now. And I myself um, have got a full team of immigrant labour. Um, and that has challenges in itself. Um, but with employing immigrant labour, you're un, you're conforming to government because you must do certain things to be able to employ these people, and it, and it's pushing um, costs up in the labour sector in our in our workforce sector. Now we've still got people like Damien O'Connor, David Parker, saying that we can do better in the dairy industry. We just need to pay our staff more oh. and stop taking advantage of overseas people. Um, I'd like to put it out there, and I've been putting it out there for a wee while, for a very long time, as long time as far back as I can remember, when we we bring immigrants into this country, we've always paid them more than we we entitled to pay Kiwis, and so how is that taken advantage of them? You know, if if you know, we wanted to save uh, money to a point where um, you know we could run in a pretty thin line. We wouldn't employ immigrants, we'd employ these delinquent uh, youths out there just to put cups on cows, but they come with their problems. And um, when we're running a multi-million dollar business inside the farm gate, we can't have those problems on farm because it costs us thousands of dollars. And I've had those experiences over the years. And that's why I went to immigrant labour and paid that little bit extra is because I get that reliability factor. They come here, they want to work, they want to earn, they want to bring their families here and so on, and you get respect. Um, where we don't get that off our Kiwis. And that all comes down to perception and the way that dairy farming has been perceived in the media. It's been very well orchestrated from the guys up the top um, and has beaten us down to the point where we're, where most of the sector is now conforming. And, yep. and I put that all down to corporatisation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I agree with you in some respects, uh, Jason. Uh, there's people who still think that, uh, who don't realise that a migrant has to be paid minimum $29.10 an hour plus everything else on top. And there is still uh, the government pushing you to get become an accredited employer, anti-slavery legislation and so on. Some days I look at the paperwork 
and all one can do is snort and laugh at it. Otherwise, honestly, you will go mad dealing with what there is. But uh, then what do you do with ministers like that? The other day, a mate of mine uh, flew from Christchurch to Queenstown, and it seems that Damien O'Connor was sitting next to this uh, mate. And they obviously piped up uh, asking, "What are you? where are you going, minister? And he says, you know, there's this farmer in central Otago somewhere who has got an all-electric tractor, and that's what I'm going to. A soundbite there. Uh, I don't know. If I'd been on the plane, I'd have looked for a parachute to just jump out or something. This is this is the caliber of, this is what our ministers seem to think, and this is as recent as this week, what they think they should be doing. This is, I've stopped calling it virtue signaling. This is ESG signaling now gone completely bonkers. And we have completely given up on... Uh, any semblance of backing our own, if they think that, you know, all of those technologies are something you and I can use. No, it, it makes no sense. And yet they continue. But as as I think we, we've taken enough of a time to do this, and I, I know it is carving. And we've had a couple of really rough days out here. How I how are your how are things on your farm right now? Everything's going, going all right. Yeah, you know, we're all set, ready for, for carving. We're just getting into it now. And um, the boys are well prepped. Uh, some of them just got back from um, from spending uh, six weeks in the Philippines, um, seeing okay. their family and wives. So, you know, everything's ticking on. And uh, I'm quite looking forward to the season ahead, to be honest, um, and, uh, and seeing what more um, advocacy stuff I can put out there. Because, you know, um, I've got a good team and uh, they support me well on farm so I can get out there in the advocacy space and do my thing. Excellent. That's that's so good to hear. And I think, uh, Don, you, you would probably agree, there's something in the water. We seem to have groundswell. We seem to have people like Jason, you even, Bernadette and others, all seem to spring from uh, this end of the country. So all part to you, Jason. Thank you so much for uh, calling a spade a spade today. Don and I really appreciate your time on Greenwash. And hopefully, once you're on the other side of carving, we'll have you back. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Jason Herrick. I certainly did. And as I've often said, it is so refreshing to hear plain speaking these days. It seems to be more and more a rarity. It it was great. He spoke from the heart, was candid, uh, real New Zealander, got his heart in 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 his community. And, uh, you know, he's got respect for fellow man and woman. So what more can you ask in a human being? I think um, he's an epitome, epitome of someone that I need to be around. He's a good a good bugger, you might say. Yep, he is. He is. Mm. And he's certainly doing a lot of good around these parts. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, regardless of what media tells you and howsoever billions they have now spent on mental health, what I'm mm. seeing and hearing around me mm. is anything but good right now yeah and he's been been through the mill and he's quite open about it and uh i think he was really brave to to come out the way he has today and talked as candidly as he did and yes. 
it's unlike me to swear on radio and the word bugger is swearing to me. So saying he's a good bugger, mm. I've broken it three times in about a minute. My golden <laughs> rule, my golden rule. So anyway, there's a lot going on in, in, in his world and there's a lot going on in ours and it just never stops, does it? Uh, we're trying yeah. to constantly push back on this tide of people that are trying to knock us around and knock us into shape. And you just get a bit sick of it. Yes. and But you would think, I mean, you and I, I at least, I'm a very, very average person, a farming wife and mom out in the backwaters of rural Southland. But when they start silencing Nobel laureates, no oh. less than a Nobel laureate for physics for 2022, so a very recent one, Dr. John Clauser, you know we are in trouble, Don, big trouble. Unbelievable. I mean, this isn't the first time something like that has happened where people are silenced for speaking um, um, as they want to, unencumbered, mm. not under the pay of anybody. They're retired. They can just say it how it is. And uh, to have uh, John F. Clauser, Dr. John F. Clauser, who was the recipient of the 2022 Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize in Physics, mm. um, sort of uh, he was going to be giving a, an interview to the Inter International Monetary Fund. And uh, after he told uh, told the Epoch Times that uh, the world was totally awash in pseudoscience, especially around climate, guess what? He was cancelled. I mean, I hope he's going to keep coming back and fighting the good fight because uh, we need people like him to stand up. No different to many of the people that we've talked about in our shows, actually. They're that I'm not saying they're past it because they're very wise. You know, this guy's 80. He's very, mm -hmm. very wise. And yet we've got people in their 20s and 30s and 40s saying they don't know much. Uh, there's a bit of arrogance here, uh, around. So, look, having an 80-year-old stand up and um, call this uh, the IPCC, effectively, and the United Nations, by default, one of the worst sources of dangerous misinformation, well, We've been trying to say that for some time. <laughs> Haven't we just? But Dr. Cl John uh, Clauser, he has developed a climate model that adds a new significant dominant process to existing models because he feels that the existing models, all the ones that IPCC and the government and your councils, all of the ones that they use, they greatly underestimate cloud feedback, which provides a very powerful dominant thermostatic control of the Earth's atmosphere. It's another way of saying that clouds are an important factor in these models that they don't consider. Well, well at, as Happer and Van Wingarten um, exposed that uh, all the previous models had done their, uh, their basis had been each individual greenhouse ga gas in isolation, and then they modeled around that. They didn't actually use a mixed atmosphere um, concentration. I have uh, never understood, Don, why would you create a laboratory model for something which is available outside in abundance? Go ahead and do it, do real-life experiments and show us, like yeah. Hapa Wingarden uh, did, and they yeah. proved that the, their results from their models match the satellite data very, very closely. 100%. And so why is it that we can't get anyone to refute the Hapa and Van Wingarden papers um, other than say, oh, they're not peer reviewed, or or you know they're not right, or they're in the pay of big oil. The the people that are putting down the 
the idea that you know, we're promoting that they could be right clearly have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And, legless, uh, legless excuses, as my dad would say. Yeah. Stop giving me legless excuses. Uh, well, and of course, uh, New Zealand's uh, net zero 2050 targets are all based on, as we keep talking about, fallacious metrics. If we, um, if it's proven that the uh, metrics for methane and nitrous oxide are wrong, then uh, clearly New Zealand's net zero 2050 targets are wrong, based off the wrong quantum. So, and I know around councils at the moment uh, that's being talked about. So, look, let's hope we get some common sense. No doubt, everyone will hide behind the MFE guidelines. It's all too hard to change. We've set us in stone. We can't change it. I'm sorry, we have to change if it's going to bankrupt the country, and it will. Mm. Yeah, so we have to. We have to change. We have to get some honesty and integrity back. And uh, I'm not hearing that from any of the. Uh, political pundits at the moment. Um, I'm hoping there will be at least one political party pick up the stuff that you and I have talked about for months. As well as Nobel laureates for decades now. Yes, yes. Yeah, it is coming to... Coming to the pointy end. Coming to the pointy end now. Mm. Yeah, but from one plain speaker, Jason Herrick, to another one now, Don. Well, yeah, look, it's a it's a guy, John Scarry is his name, and he's a structural engineer, and he's had a bit of a beef. I've known about him for years. We've interacted mm-hmm. on different online forums, but I've never really understood entirely what his beef was with the um, consenting and design and uh, tension he's developed with uh, his profession. And so we're going to hear about it in the next segment, and John, he's another one, doesn't mince words. And, yeah, uh, right from 2003 when he first called out the then Institute of uh, Professional Engineers for what was wrong with New Zealand's building standards or the lack of thereof, he has not been quiet. No, and a clear deficiency in some of the construction um, mm. methods he's trying to highlight. And uh, clearly some of the things he's highlighted uh, would have had serious repercussions had they not been remedied. Um, and not all of them have been remedied, I, I gather, but... Uh, you know, he's putting it out there. Uh, we need to tighten up our our rules and, yeah. and oversight. We've had too many leaky buildings to not, mm. uh, you know, pay heed to this stuff. Yeah, for... so we've we've got him on for what was it forty five minutes, and uh, hopefully we'll um we'll reach a conclusion that uh, something's got to change. That's yes. what I'm intending. Yes. John to, John yeah. was kind enough to give uh, John and me an hour of his time a few evenings ago, so we will just go down go back to john's interview and be back in a moment thank you so much for joining us 2057 is a number our inbox at the rate reality check dot radio just brief Bopperai and don nicholson with greenwash on rcr reality check radio welcome back listeners to rcr's greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don, and remember to give us that feedback on 2057 or on uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, so uh, a lot of things have been happening in the last week, but one thing that uh, doesn't stop happening for New Zealand is the engineers. They always get out and do their work and build stuff. And of course, um, it's a vital part of our whole economy, having engineers building stuff. So with that in mind, uh, today, we've got a gentleman who has put his life behind 
the ideas of engineering, especially civil engineering and building stuff. And so his name's John Scarry, and he was trained in the 80s as a um, BE and a Master of Engineering and Civil or Civil Engineering. And he joins us now. John, good g'day, how are you? And uh, thanks for coming on to RCR Greenwashed. And you've got a lot to talk about, I think. Um, I've read quite a bit about you on online and you've sent us some data. You could say you're a fly in the ointment, perhaps, uh, of the engineers' institutes uh, of the country, but for good reason. So how would you how would you answer that? Well, um, I can't be the fly in the ointment because that implies that someone is applying some sort of salve to sort out the problems, and they aren't. <laughs> I'm saying the ointment needs to be applied, and I've been saying it for 21 years now, and yet the people uh, that we rely upon to sort out the illnesses within the building and construction sector are not doing it, and it just goes on. And it's not just the last 21 years. If you go back the last three decades or whatever, there have been undeniable problems and they just keep going. And the latest stuff out of MIMBY is really repeating stuff that could have been said in the 1990s and it's just irrelevant. We have very serious problems and they're not being addressed. So this is predominantly in the big construction uh, industry like there's a lot in terms of housing, but a lot of your issues seem to stem with into the into the larger commercial type entities. Am I right? Yes, it's right across the structural engineering field, and I tried to draw attention to it when I wrote a report that I called my open letter uh, back in 2002. But the interesting thing was that although officially my warnings were decried in meetings. You would have people saying, oh, you think it's bad in, in structural, you should look at geotechnical or mechanical or whatever. So um, there were some sort of universal truths across all the engineering disciplines to what I was saying. And, um, you know, uh, it, the problems are in house building. Um, leaky buildings were just the tip of the iceberg. It goes into commercial institutional structures that across into civil and many other aspects of engineering in New Zealand. Yeah, so so just to put me in the picture a bit better, because we're sort of in that um, earthquake zone uh, that not all the world has um, sort of earthquakes the way we can have them, uh, unlike you know, perhaps Europe, some places in Europe, are our building codes more onerous, more, more strenuous than the, than, say, downtown London, for instance? Um, obviously, um, you know, there's actually no problem with the New Zealand building codes. The problem is essentially implementation and oversight. One of the sort of perverse things, though, is that because of the seismic design requirements, we end up with sort of more robust structures. And if we didn't have those seismic requirements, we would have far more problems under gravity loading from serviceability, et cetera. And when I wrote my open letter back in 2002, I did say the major problems I was identifying related to seismic deficiencies. But then in relatively short order, we had two major 
um, stadium-type structures, which were um, basically failing during erection because they could not sustain their gravity loading. Right. So there's a couple of uh, key words that I need to sort of, or one key word in particular that I seem to uh, come across in your in your output is the word moment. Tell us what that absolutely means. I know it's a, it's a um, engineering term. It's certainly not a term that a layman understands. Well, um, actually, um, if you don't know what a Benny moment is, that's good because you can sort of be happy and relaxed and everything. <laughs> and once you study structural engineering and learn what a Benny moment is, life becomes difficult. It's basically a lever action. The fact is that, for example, um, you could lift up a sack of, say, 40 kilograms of meal or cement or whatever. It's quite hard to lift, but you're basically lifting it close to your body. There's not much of a bending moment. But if you had to hold on to a plank and the 40 kilograms was like two meters at the end of the plank, it's got a lever action, which you would find to be very difficult. It's basically lever action because the load is applied eccentric where the reaction is. Yeah, and I did learn that in third form. It's at, uh, I forget the name of the course. It wasn't tech drawing and it wasn't physics. It was something in between. I can't remember what it was called. But Yeah, um, and if you, yeah. If you have two, two forces that don't line up, there will be a bending moment. Sure. And usually it's the bending moments that generate the biggest stresses in the structure. And so most of your dilemmas, aside from uh, uh, some of your colleagues uh, and some of the organisations, most of your concern is around the robustness of the building method applied, the design and, and application of the design and the shortfalls, because we've seen some ser fairly serious um, uh, construction failures, and you've highlighted some of them in some of your notes to us. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk to us about some of those and and the reason why you're so passionate about it? Clearly, uh, as I said in an interview earlier, uh, this in, in the series is um, engineers don't like seeing things that fail. Uh, it's not not in their nature. They want stuff to be uh, robust for for the for the duration. Yes, um, it's not just the design phase of it. It's uh, when I wrote my open letter, it it was not just about structural engineering or structural engineering design. It was about the construction phases from sort of conception through to completion. Um, and to a large extent, engineers and particularly structural engineers are somewhat disadvantaged in that we are a profession which relies on a lot of semi-skilled and unskilled people doing our construction work. So um, the concerns I have um, are that I have espoused relate to very bad construction practices, but also very bad design practices. Because the thing about engineering is it's not about some sort of theoretical thing you're arguing about. It's actually producing a building, a power plant, a dam, a road, or whatever that works. And it's across the entire spectrum of, say, the building and construction industry that we've got these problems. And it's not just about um, you know, a, a collapse or the risk of a collapse. It's things like um, reduced durability because of poor construction, 
the building is going to have serious maintenance issues within, say, 10 years instead of 50 years, et cetera. And then you also have a problem of, and it's really come to be highlighted in the Christchurch earthquakes and the assessment of damage and repairs. Um, I've spent a lot of my work over the last nine years acting as an expert witness for homeowners with earthquake-damaged houses, but I've also had to investigate failed repairs and rebuilds in which the standard of work has been appalling. And the thing isn't going to fall down, but the point is it doesn't meet the code, it's not durable, and the homeowners have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars seeking redress on it. How many of those have you had to, if you don't mind saying, I don't need you to say anything that's that's um, perhaps confidential, but based on, on that Christchurch earthquake, how many of those cases have you had to sort of adjudicate over? Well, I've been involved in about 170 properties, oh, mainly dealing with the repairs that are required. But um, before the earthquakes, I was involved in an apartment building which was a leaker and had structural deficiencies. This is before the September 2010 earthquake. And then it suffered serious damage in the Christchurch earthquake sequence. And that sort of led through eventually to some other jobs and more and more, et cetera. But um, uh, the rebuild has also highlighted some serious deficiencies. For example, um, you had a building which, after the Royal Commission had the hearings into the CTV building, was built, which had the same fundamental defects as the CTV building and was only identified by some uninterested engineers. And by that, I mean they weren't involved with the, pro the project. They just happened to look at it and say, that can't be right, and that led to retrofits. Um, there is, um, the first building of the rebuild, and the actual fact, was basically written off in on the 13th of June 2011. Um, it was supposed to be current code compliant in what Mayor Bob Parker was saying would be um, a rebuild to create the safest city in the world from a seismic perspective because we had no alternative. And yet the first building basically completed after 22nd of February, after a not an enormous earthquake in that location. It was leaning over at five degrees and had to be demolished and rebuilt. And um, and then more recently in Christchurch, you have the case of 230 High Street, a brand new eight-storey building which has serious deficiencies and will never probably never be occupied. It will have to be demolished. It sounds a huge dilemma, and I, you know, as a layman, I'm still struggling to understand how things can be so so poorly um, delivered. And one thing I've noted in some of your correspondence is that uh, in days of old, perhaps when you were just out of university, it may have been that a engineer, a civil engineer, would get perhaps four to six percent, say, of the build value would be or cost would be the engineer's um, design and ongoing input into the build. Now you I think I'm reading where it's below 1%. Is that that sounds like a serious uh problem. Yeah, I think the rot had set in before I actually started working, but um it was still a minimum scale of fees which kept fees to a reasonable level. Since then the actual 
demands of seismic engineering and other things have increased the demands for design and documentation, um, but uh, fees have tended to be cut, um, so they're often below 1%. One of the examples I became aware of in 1988, and I put it into my open letter of 2002, was a, um, a, uh, a, um, a supermarket building in Canada, which had a steel structure and a concrete roof on top for parking. And the day the building opened, people drove up on the roof and walked down to the main car park on the ground for the grand opening ceremony, rumble, rumble, and the roof collapsed. No one was killed, but um, basically it collapsed on opening day with nowhere near the design loading on it. And the Royal Commission noted that the design fee was something like 0.15% fees. And that wasn't the lowest tender. And they recommended that structural fees should be the order of 6%. But that is not the case. Whereas I understand in countries like Germany and France, they have maintained high fees, but it allows them to maintain their standards. And so what is designed is um, well thought out and buildable, plus they have the skilled workforce to build it. John, you stopped. you're talking of issues you've been aware of since 1988. Your open letter was in 2002, so two decades ago. Has anything changed since then at all? Are you the only person in your profession who's been speaking up about this? Um, I'm largely the only person who speaks openly, but it's not like um, I'm a sole voice. One of the things that has protected me over the years, because initially people tried to get me for writing my open letter, and I made it clear I could defend myself. But the people I respect to be amongst the top engineers in New Zealand support me fully. They can't necessarily speak out publicly, but like the top analytical engineer, the top steel engineer, other top engineers have, when needed, been prepared to, to stand up and defend me on that. So would it be safe to say that you're not holding your breath for this latest initiative from MB, their building consensus review paper that's out right now? You don't hold out high hopes for uh, any substantial improvements coming from that one? Well, um, if you read it, the, the language it's using is actually regurgitating the nonsense of the late 80s, early 90s which created so many problems with respect to the leaky building crisis. They're talking about self-certifying. Well, um, you know, the, the, issue, the idea of a peer review where a, another professional reviews a design and says, yes, this is a good design, it's code compliant, that has failed time and time and time again. So why is self-certification going to fix them? It's not going to. And this is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at that paper and I see that MB this morning on the website have extended the submissions from the 7th, the deadline, to the 21st. And they say that this is probably the most comprehensive ever. And they're also adding in more bits from the Green Building Council and all. So the world seems to be tacking on a whole lot of other bits of, should I call it virtue signaling? green buildings and all of this, and yet we can't get the basics right. No, I'd like to um, leave the green side, the green <laughs> side of it aside for the moment. Um, mm -hmm. 
as far as um, fees and performance and productivity goes, um, in the Western countries, minimum scale of professional fees were done away with in the 80s or early 90s. And it turns out that the sort of um, certain professions, particularly legal, their um, fees have gone sky high since then. But in particularly structural or, or engineering, the fees have um, decreased. And also with the loss of skilled training, which we used to have with the Ministry of Works, New Zealand Electricity Department, Railways, etc., the training base has been eroded as well. And it became so bad in Australia in the early 2000s that the Queensland Division of Engineers Australia did a formal investigation. And they showed that in Queensland, because of a decline in fees and a decline of building, design, documentation, et cetera, because what we do in our drawings is produce basically a roadmap telling people what we want, and it's supposed to um, facilitate competent, efficient construction. The errors and deficiencies in the design documentation was such that they determined that it was adding 10 to 15% of waste and loss to the Queensland construction industry. So there was about two to $3 billion wasted, plus there's a multiplier effect in the economy. And that was back in 2005. Similar studies have been done in Britain, and yet the, the nonsense just carries on. And no one is prepared to do the simple basic things of reading the Riot Act and enforcing um, proper action to sort it out. Now, as far as MIMBY goes and the current Labour government, and um, they're not much worse than previous national governments. I mean, the only minister who's shown any real interest over the last 21 years was Leanne Dalzell, who received my open letter at the same time that the leaky building crisis was being exposed. And she showed some additional interest in 2012, but um, she lost her portfolio back in 2003. And um, I've had uh, in opposition, the politicians like talking. And so along with some other engineers, I had one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one meetings with people like Grant Robertson, um, David Clark, um, Phil Twyford, Jenny Salisa, et cetera, in opposition. So many people, not in New Zealand first and Labour, were made aware of all of these problems. And yet when they get into government, what do they do? Well, Phil Twyford and others decide that although the house building industry in New Zealand is at full tag and has productivity and quality problems, they will introduce Kiwi Build, which requires a doubling of the number of houses to be built per year. Well, where were the people going to come from to build these houses? At the time, the entire house building industry was completely committed, and they said, right, we'll double them, the output. It's just ludicrous, and yet they did it. That's a, a government prerogative, isn't it, is to seduce the, the electorate to sort of believe they can deliver on something when they actually have very little practical knowledge of, of what's required. Who advised them, uh, though, John, would have to have been, would have been in my sites that I've been around Wellington. The question I want to ask is, so where's local government and their uh, consenting agents in all of this? Where are they? 
Well, the local governments were basically set up to be a patsy because in ye old days, um, up until um, the local government reforms of the 90s, of the 80s and early 90s, um, you had, like in Auckland, you had 17 cities and boroughs and, and so on. And they all had a architectural department, a works department, an engineering department. And most of them ran on the smell of an oily rag. And Auckland, um, which was a lot smaller than it is now, had quite an impressive engineering department, architecture department, works department, etc. And they had their own building bylaws and so on. Well, in 1991, a national building code was set up and the effectively the local authorities were set up to implement the national building code at the local level. But the, the so-called reforms of the 1980s and early 90s forced these councils to divest themselves of their technical staff who were able to do it. And so um, on the one hand, they were made liable for building consents, et cetera, but they were, um, you know, their ability to set their own bylaws was taken away and they were forced to get rid of their technically competent staff. None of it makes any sense. Yeah. Not for me to want bigger government or more government officials on the, on the planet, but um, it does seem something as basic as, as having the right people in the right place for this job is important. And yet, as I read, it seems that perhaps some of the very best people do get to be uh, seduced into perhaps private enterprise where they uh, want to set up their own construction firms or, or be part of a construction firm, and then they become almost judge and jury over their own build. Is that, that's me just making a off-the-cuff assessment. Is is that something that can be substantiated? Yeah, the um, issue of um, New Zealand contractors and building contractors, et cetera, um, I think there are problems that go back to 1967, 1968, with um, the building downturn and the Carpenters' Union pushing for redundancy that led to contractors getting rid of their skilled staff. But we have the farce that in 2008, Shane Jones, as the minister, organised a talk fest in Auckland um, to try and raise the productivity in the building and construction industry. And productivity is highly linked to quality. You do things once, you get it right and you move on. The idea that you either have productivity or quality is completely wrong. And when the Germans and the Japanese were getting it right, they understood that you have high quality, which is productivity. So in 2008, they organised a talk fest in Auckland of about 84 invited people, including people from the Prime Minister's office. But strangely, I was not given an invitation. And they... Um, had a discussion on how to raise the productivity in the New Zealand building and construction industry. And they set up a committee to report back. And that committee um, included either the chief executives or the deputy chief executives of some of the biggest commercial construction companies, it included representatives of some of the biggest house building companies. And they produced a report of about 38 pages and in it, only one paragraph was worth anything. It was just nonsense. And the question that I would ask 
as if these big contractors and these big house builders knew how to solve the quality and productivity problems, why hadn't they done it with their own within their own companies and within their, their subcontractors and suppliers? Because if they had done that, they would have raised the standards throughout the entire industry. So um, some millions of government, of taxpayer money was set up to create this um, task force and they set up a, a logo and it was 20 by 2020. So um, within 12 years, they were going to raise productivity by 20%. And after about six years, they got nowhere and they disbanded it. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. And yet it's absolutely stock standard for what goes on in New Zealand. And when um, my open letter in 2002 was one of the two drivers for reform and the politicians took a politician's approach and they decided they would rewrite the building act. And basically it was all written by bureaucrats and their solution was to set up a new government department. And I told these uh, politicians that you're setting up a government department that is devoid of technical competence. And they did. They set up the Department of Building and Housing, which was almost completely devoid of technical competence. And um, they had like a chief engineer, but there was actually no one under him. And that carried on for about 12 years or so when it got absorbed into MIMBY. You've got these people in charge of regulating the building and construction industry who basically don't know anything. They'll come up with policy statements, but they don't know how to implement each time you say MIMBY, I don't know why the word NIMBY pops into my head, John, but I'll look past this. You mentioned 230 High Street, Christchurch. So I looked it up. I I wonder who's the fall guy in this. I, looking at the details of this, as RNZ reported, a property developer is suing Christchurch City Council for $19 million over a blighted office block it, it wants to demolish. Claims and counterclaims have been flying over 230 High Street because they say the building poses risk to adjacent pedestrian walkaways and users, neighboring properties, and so on. The council states, the external engineer, and this is where you said that, you know, the in-house teams went and you now are relying on external people. The council, Christchurch Council, stated that WSP, the external engineers relied on, spent only two hours reviewing the superstructure's design and less than two hours each on amended designs. Who's the fall guy here? One would think that, just like crime, for which we seem to have no repercussions right now, if the heavy hand of law was coming on, onto, you know, the they were being faced with some sort of serious, serious reparations here, this thing would stop. Does nothing happen? Do these firms not get held liable enough to stop them doing this? Well, sorry, the peer reviewers for 230 High Street wasn't mm. WSP. It was another company. Okay. Uh, and, and the man involved was a fellow of engineering New Zealand. Um, and um, it was actually, the problems were actually discovered by a graduate engineer walking home one Saturday night after going to the pub. And he just looked up and said, that can't, connection can't be right. And asked the question of his employer. He wasn't involved with the project. And his employers in a completely independent firm asked a few questions, and it snowballed from there. But one of the problems, of course, is that any of these problems leads to litigation, and the costs are horrific. Now, one 
thing I will say of um, Jeanette Fitzsimons. She got it right once when she talked about when a oil tanker crashes into the shore and you spend a billion dollars cleaning up the mess, that counts as a billion dollars of economic activity and goes to you know, growth in GDP, when obviously it isn't. Well, we're getting rich by building deficient houses and buildings and the lawsuits, because if you build, say, a house competently and it costs $400,000, that's $400,000 of economic activity. But if it's a stuff-up, there will probably be about a million dollars of lawyers involved in the lawsuit and then payments, say, from the council to demolish and rebuild. So you might have $2 million of economic activity instead of 400000 But I don't think we're getting rich that way. We would be far better off if we just built the house right in the first place. And maybe with um, affordable building materials and productivity, it would cost 300000 So we've got this problem too of even in, in um, situations like the... Um, so it's supposedly low-cost, whether tight homes uh, tribunal or the Canterbury Earthquakes Insurance Tribunal, homeowners are spending a hundred to two hundred thousand. Defendants are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's far better for society to pay some more money and get it designed right and constructed right. But the waste of public money. Um, goes across to the polytechnics and the um, uh, apprenticeship schemes. I mean, the apprenticeship schemes were done away with stupidly in the early 1990s. They haven't been rebuilt. We had the government departments, which were a great source of training of engineers and technicians and draftsmen and tradesmen. Private industry really benefited from that. They were all done away with and a critical thing. If I had my way, um, we would reinstitute proper apprenticeship schemes and the polytechnics would be ordered to basically support those proper schemes. They would not be businesses. If they had to shrink by 50% but get back to basics, that's what they would do. Because the only reason for having polytechnics is to support proper trade training. And New Zealand used to have world-class trade training, perhaps not quite as good as Germany, but not far off it. And yet by 2005, New Zealand largely stopped sending apprenticeships to international competition because they couldn't cut the grade. Gosh. And I, I, I I, sorry, I don't want to make it appear as if, every, you know, I get criticised for claiming that everyone is incompetent. No, we have excellent people, and I know excellent really young people. I know one excellent apprentice who was actually running a complicated job and did it very well. And we have lots of people who want the training, but the trouble is that quality needs to be down at the bottom 5% or even down at the bottom 0%. We've basically got to always get these things right, and there's no reason why we can't. I took another look, uh, John. Uh, the RNZ article, and the owner of that 230 High Street is some Hung Sun Kim and Rockwell Development. Is that the same uh, we were talking about, Christchurch High Street property? 
Well, I don't know the... Yeah, I think it's a Korean owner and Rockwell Development, and they are blaming the council, and the council is blaming WSP, that we relied on them. So I don't think it's a direct connection, but indirectly, that's whom the council says that it was let down. But in uh, any yeah, but case... Sorry, sorry hmm? wait, wait. there was a structural engineer who actually did the design, and then mm-hmm. it went out for peer review by a firm, another firm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's other examples... You know, there's been major stadia. One of the things, too, is people put the blame on um, developers, and developers were a problem, and a big loss was the loss of Clark of Works because it used to be you would have a Clark of Works on most projects who would look at, you know, um, they would authorise payments, but they'd maintain, they'd be on-site all the time inspecting and maintaining qualities. Um, Developers got rid of those. But as I showed in my open letter, and in many of the examples since then, the worst examples are blue chip, supposedly blue chip buildings designed by blue chip firms for blue chip clients done by blue chip contractors. And yet, disaster was just averted by good fortune, not good management. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Seriously. And you would think engineers, engineering is such a logical branch. These are people who are able to think laterally and yet you have these issues. But perhaps where where would you lay the blame, John? In most bigger organizations, they say the tone is always set at the top. So is it the regulatory bodies? Um, Again, it's across the board. Um, Certainly, I would put the biggest blame actually at structural engineers as a profession because if every structural engineer was prepared to say, I'm not going to put up with this crap, we're going to stop it, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, one sort of related example was in after I wrote my open letter, um, certain authorities were out to get me for having dared write my open letter. And I was going to be convicted of breaching ethics and all of this crap by um, actually writing it. Well, I wasn't being judged against the code of ethics. It was against some guidelines which were completely inappropriate. For example, IPENS, it was called at the time, didn't have a form like Form 252. Write in if you think the structural engineering profession is stuffed. They didn't have one. And I had to basically um, use a bit of, um, I had to sort of call a spade a spade because that's what the situation required. But at about the same time, a young doctor at Auckland Hospital spoke out and he he was, um, you know, the authorities there could have gone after him. And all the other junior doctors said, if you go after him, we're out on strike. Well, basically, when I spoke out, I looked around and I was basically standing alone, except a few people, a, a very small number of top engineers did support me behind the scenes. But it was up to me to take that thing. So that brings us on to your industry bodies. Now, there's there was IPENS now ENZ, and I think there was one other. Uh, plus, you've got CSOC. Uh, could you just give us the wiring diagram how they all work? Uh, well, if you go back um, to the eighties and nineties, there used to be a New Zealand Institution of Engineers or Institute mm-hmm. of Engineers. And it was all the different disciplines of engineering. And uh, they would have various magazines and you would uh, there would be technical articles and members could get letters published 
and so on. But then by the late 90s, early 2000s, um, it, it, a, a shift occurred where Engineering New Zealand, or IPENS at the time, basically said, we will deal with the ethical and professional standards, but the technical stuff will be farmed off to affiliated technical societies. So you have like the New Zealand Society of Earthquake Engineering, the Structural Engineering Society, the New Zealand Geotechnical Society, and all of these other societies to deal with other branches like electrical and mechanical, etc. And I think that's wrong because you can't separate in any profession like medicine or engineering, you can't, or architecture, you can't separate the ethical from the technically competent. They're intertwined. Intertwined. Yeah, all right. So I, I've read quite a few letters that have gone to and fro, but I want to read, listeners, your introduction of your open letter, just to sort of covers covers everything that we've talked about to this point, but I'll just sort of cover it again. This letter seeks to make IPENs aware of the appalling state of the structural engineering profession and construction industry in New Zealand and proposes practical steps urgently required to address the situation. The widespread low standards of technical competence, unprofessional and irresponsible behaviour by leading structural engineers and territorial authorities and commercial realities are such that structural engineering in New Zealand is about to become the first profession in the modern world that will cease to become, cease to be a profession. That's pretty harsh stuff, John. And here we are 21 years on and you're still fighting the fight. And I've, so so this is a bit, bit of a long um, overview. I've also read a letter uh, response to you from your CSOC group back to you in 2020. And it is, uh, as I often observe in the farming lobbies, it talks about if we do not speak with a unified voice, we, we risk being ignored. Uh, shades of being muzzled in here, I would suggest, John, that they don't want you to be speaking as you've been speaking, even if the safety of the community is at risk. Yeah, the structural engineering profession as a whole has enormous power, as do all other professional bodies. I mean, again, this idea... And it's really coming to a head if I can get into the wider social thing. Um, although, you know, New Zealand follows the English sort of constitutional position, but the simple fact is the people have the power and authority and, and sovereignty, and, and politicians are only there to do our bidding. They are our employees. And, um, and uh, a classic example of that is Morris Williamson. Now, to his credit, when Morris Williamson got made the minister in 2008, um, he agreed to meet a group of engineers, including me, in his electorate office in Pakaranga. And Jamie Lee Ross, who was his electorate chairman at the time, was there as well. And um, what is quite shocking is if anybody, anyone bothers to read the briefing to an incoming minister on any subject, um, in 2008, the briefing from the Department of Building and Housing to Morris Williamson basically said, oh, leaky buildings are a relatively minor and historic problem. 
Well, at that time, it was like a billion dollars. Now it's admitted to be tens of billions of dollars. And didn't mention anything about the stadia that had almost collapsed or anything like that. I mean, the main thing on these briefings are, you are the minister. This is this department. We need X millions a year to operate. It is your job to get it for us. No, it is your job to represent the interests of the people. So we had that meeting, and before I spoke, what other people there were telling them, had them pounding, fist pounding the table saying, why aren't these people in prison? I'm going to get to the bottom of it, blah, 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 blah. Well, he walked out and apparently went to the likes of Engineering New Zealand and others, and they said, no, 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 uh, no problems, it's all crap. Oh, okay. And so he took them at their word and did nothing. And um, so um, after the Christchurch earthquakes, I was on close-up with him, in 2012, and um, Mark Sainsbury asked me, uh, he basically said, we can't take uh, John Scarry's word for it. Um, you know, there's a big organisation, all these people with, what did he say, um, letters after their name longer than the Russian alphabet, except people like that told him of these problems in the meeting. And he said, and then later on, um, uh, Mark Sainsbury asked what I wanted Morris Williamson to do. And I said, I want him to resign. And Sainsbury asked Morris Williamson, would he resign? And he said, no, but I'll give John Scarry this. If the main engineering bodies say that he's right, we'll have to give him what he wants. There will be no alternative. The government would have to admit it. So if CSOC, for example, and, and at the time, CSOC could have said there are major issues. We need serious reform across the industry. They wouldn't. but. If CSOC came out and said these things, because they are the recognised technical professional body to Engineering New Zealand, Engineering New Zealand would have nowhere to hide. They'd have to agree. And the government would have to agree, and we could get those ref that reform. But instead, as you would have read, you get this nonsense of, it's better to be on the bridge of the super tanker of state talking to the captain then flailing around in the water, achieving nothing. It's garbage. Well, it is garbage. And I see here in this response by the five people that wrote to your, your letter in that journal, it said, our challenge to you is to question yourself often and regularly to ensure you are living and breathing the quality and professional standards that we all must aspire to. Well, isn't that them sort of shooting themselves in the foot and trying they're trying to chastise you in this sector here section here but clearly that for 20 years of an action you would actually have to say that that was the pot calling the kettle black yes and um as i i pointed out to morris williamson um you've got the government will go and talk to the so-called you know, chief executives of this company or that company or whatever. And we're not perfect, and all of us will make mistakes. But basically, the, the, the people that they recognise as authorities, everyone knows full well that these companies have designed shocker after shocker after shocker, and they don't have any bloody, um, uh, you know, like just decency to, you know, to not be hypocritical. You know, it, it, if you if you don't want to be hypocritical, shut up. But these people, uh, these companies are designing shockers, but then denying them. And if you look at the list that I've written, 
no one can look at that and say there aren't very, very serious problems. And these are just the ones that I know about because most of them are secret after settlements and things like that. And it's it's absolutely acknowledged that the New Zealand building and construction industry has low productivity. And yet um, politicians don't care. They, you know, again, politicians are supposed to come up with policies that are a benefit to the country. And yet I know ones who know there are serious problems and they say, we're not going to have a policy because there's no votes in it. Well, I think long-term, if you actually show you're representing the interests of the people long-term, you will get those votes. And fun, one of the fundamental things, socially, economically, et cetera, is having a, a reform of the proper apprenticeship schemes. But I do not know one political party that actually acknowledges it or is committed to it. Well, that's a sad indictment on, on the system. And I, you know, as a taxpayer of... Yeah, a long-suffering taxpayer, I want the foundations of this country to be well um, established and and steady. And sadly, we don't seem to have any willingness to make sure that occurs. Um, we're, and I know we're going to talk today about uh, climate, but you know, I can't resist. Uh, we're seeing the same stuff, even when the IPCC is saying uh, that there's not the risk that we're told there is uh, around sea level rise or, or or the like. We've still got our entities willing to put us under the bus at huge cost to the country. And I have read a letter, perhaps it's not supposed to be in my hand, uh, that states that the minister Ministry for the Environment just doesn't want to acknowledge it because it's all too hard to wind it back. That is a, that is a scandal that needs to be um, sort of acknowledged. And it's similar. If you can draw, I'm drawing a parallel with your issue. Um, you can't have these entities not representing the taxpayer, the citizen, with on points of principle when they know what they're doing is not is not on solid foundations. And so, um, I, how much more of this can we take? I mean, what's your next plan of action on this, um, John? Just more of the same. Keep keep pushing the boat out and trying. Well, I don't want it to make it, I mean, basically, I'm not doing anything more. And the reason is, you know, as we will discuss, I'm sure, in the next interview, if you give me one, I am completely censored on critical issues. But um, the absolute stupidity of all of these things, if I can quickly run through just how important building and construction and structural is. And Absolutely. obviously, you need, um, you know, oh, sorry, Brian Leyland, who you head on. Now, one thing I'll say about Brian, um, you know, this thing about censorship and everything. Brian and I got to know each other through the same organization that I got to know Don through, the Climate Change Coalition, Climate Science Coalition. And Brian and I have absolute humdinger arguments. So we will be going backwards and forwards, not personal, but so on. And then someone will intervene and say, "This is getting nowhere. It's you know, um, you know, it's, it's um, um, you know, creating you know bad air or whatever." And so we'll stop. But the next day, he will take my phone call or I will answer his email because he's interested in a good argument. And Brian will tell me he actually puts out things he drafts for people to critique. 
because he wants to know whether he's made a mistake. And one of the strengths of the Western society and free speech is that you're actually able to test things just like prototyping an aircraft or whatever, and you can actually arrive at the best solution. Now, um, in the building and construction sector, oh, sorry, the thing about Brian is he pointed out that Engineering New Zealand a few years ago spent quite a few tens of thousands of dollars asking, I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, to determine the value of engineering to the New Zealand economy. How important was it? And they came up and said, oh, it's the second most important sector after tourism. But without um, the engineering sector, you can't have any tourism. Oh, gosh. And, and like, for example, agriculture and fishing, forestry, rural land development, urban land development, land transport, sea transport, air transport, electricity, fuel, telecommunications, water supply, national defence, wholesale, retail, um, food distribution, food storage, health sector, education, housing, disaster resilience, and sports and entertainment. These are all facilities done by structural engineers were essential. Now, back prior to the 2020 election, the National Party produced a series of glossy um, policy documents. And there were four that caught my eye. One was on the economy. The other, another one was infrastructure and transport. And then they had uh, a one on housing and building and construction. And if they had lots of um, glossy photographs, and if you ignore all the photographs of the politicians, every photograph had at least one, if not two, if not six fields of engineering in it, because the entire economy and infrastructure and transport and housing is all on engineering. But in those um, four documents, the word engineer was only mentioned once. And you even had the statement on the economic side was, was that we will have a, a highly performing economy and as a result, we will have high productivity. Uh, no, you need the high productivity and the value adding to have the high performing economy. It's as simple as that. And these people don't get it. Well, they would have had their diversity, equity, and inclusion um, stuff oh. in there as well, no doubt. Oh, no, no, <laughs> had, no, no, that hadn't come at that stage. But the other thing, too, is you know, they talk about high productivity, but the New Zealand building and construction industry is so large until you deal with the, um, the low productivity in it. You can't, it's a drag on the entire economy. And it's also, um, you know, uh, an enormous opportunity because if we had the proper training, and one of the problems we've got now is do we have enough skilled people to provide the training on the job? But there's a lot of, you know, disadvantaged youth, et cetera, who would benefit greatly from these apprenticeships, and we would benefit from the apprenticeships as well. And in the old days of the excellent apprenticeship schemes, they also had the Maori apprenticeship schemes, with, which got lots of Maori into the middle class, although a lot of them then headed off to Australia to um, make more money out of it. So again, none of it makes any sense. And if you just look at it from fundamental basics, you've got to address these basic issues of skilled people doing a job competently, doing it once, doing it right, and getting on with it. 
So that was the National Party that uh, put out that in uh, pre-2020 the election. But in 2019, the 28th of February, you wrote to the Prime Minister and the uh, Right Honourable Winston Peters and asked them to please intervene to stop the mismanagement of the building and construction sector relating and related training and do what is required to save them. What was the upshot? Well, the Prime Minister um, didn't even, like, at least when I wrote to Helen Clark asking for her minister to be fired, she at least wrote, signed a letter back. But Jacinda Ardern got an offside to send an email saying the Prime Minister has noted your concerns. And one of the fundamental things, of course, was the Minister, Jenny Savlisa, um, had no... Um, now, again, building and construction is enormously important. And the thing with her was she had that in another portfolio, but she was also the Assistant Minister of Health and Education. Now, the reading to be the Assistant Minister or Deputy Minister of Health and Education is such, how could anyone keep up with what's going on in building construction? And so Adun ignored me, but then a while later, she fired Jenny Salisa for failure to, to do anything, but then replaced her with another minister who hasn't done any better either. I am very surprised. Jacinda Ardern had sworn that we were going to be the first country in the world to have the United Nations, uh, you know, SDGs in our legislation. SDG 11 is safe, sustainable, resilient cities. How are we doing on those stakes? Not very really good by what you are telling us, John. Well, you could also look at child poverty. Again, having productive, um, uh, you know, high-paying, skilled jobs is is the essential way to get children out of poverty. It's not giving benefits to the family. It's creating a, a value-adding, high-growth, productive economy where ordinary people can get a decent income, where they can raise their children to a decent standard, as we used to have as a basically the norm in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, we're a long way from it. So just for my um, uh, knowledge, really, the Southam Stadium that collapsed, uh, I think it was 2011, 2010, sorry, 2010, uh, was a sort of, they said it was a heavy snow. It was sort of uh, the snow was wetter than normal and it was a lot heavier than normal. Um, my son-in-law, by the way, was the second last person out that day and he was not very happy with the noises of um, shearing bolts uh, all around him. Tell me, was that a fault that has been replicated elsewhere in New Zealand? And, and the fault was, I gather, around some welding that was deficient or not enough welding. Was, was that replicated anywhere else? Well, before I get on to that, it's interesting to note that I was interviewed um, on national radio shortly after that, and someone from e uh, IPENS was on as well, and that person raised climate, and he said, it's thought that climate change may have played a role. <laughs> well, um, in actual fact, my understanding of it, and I stand to be corrected, is that when it was being erected in 1999, under just the self-weight the reef trusses were deflecting excessively. And that led to an investigation and there were a lot of design deficiencies. And in order to deal with the excess deflection of these reef trusses, they actually cut through them, cropped them and cut right through them, backed them up and re-welded them back together. 
but they didn't remove the roofing, which meant they couldn't actually get in and do welds around these hollow sections. And my reading of the official report, and it was it was very smart uh, that we, what was done, is the engineers investigating replicated one of these joints and tested it, you know, with a good weld on the bottom of this hollow section, um, reasonable welds up the side and no weld across the top. They pulled on it, worked out its strength and back calculated. And my recollection is they said the snow load was 0.3 kPa. Now, any building in Wangarei and in Kaitaia that is not designed for snow load has to be designed for a live load of 0.25 kPa. So that didn't come into play as far as I'm aware. Now, in Europe, they do have a problem where when you have snow on a roof for months at a time, the lower level of snow actually melts and refreezes as ice. So instead of being, let's say, a metre of fluffy, low-weight snow, it's actually 600 millimetres of ice, and then the thing comes down. But pre, you know, at the time when the then minister was telling me I didn't know what I was talking about, a stadium was being erected in Auckland where um, there were problems with it, and it was subsequently found that at the main support points, the the connections were overstressed 900% on the design loads. The thing was deflecting markedly under a quarter of the self-weight of the roof. And then two years later, another uh, large stadium came within a hair's breadth of total collapse and was only saved by a miraculous set of circumstances. And but for a miraculous set of circumstances, that roof could have collapsed. And that's just under self-weight. There's no snow on it or no wind or anything, just under the self-weight. So, and um, just one thing about that, uh, the stadium in 2004 is talking about the main connection. Um, Maureen Pugh, who gets, uh, who, who's been attacked you know, relatively recently, well, um, when she was a mayor in 2009, she arranged for me to give a speech to a meeting of all the mayors of New Zealand, ironically in Christchurch and in Cathedral Square. And, um, and uh, back about 2018 or 19, I, when she was in opposition, I contacted her and had a meeting and it was for an hour, but she basically talked for about two hours. And I, as an example, I, I showed her this main connection in the roof and asked her what mechanism would fail by. I gave her a little hint, but she got it in one. And she said, well, if I can see it, why can't the structural engineers? Mm -hmm. And obviously many structural engineers would. And I said, well, if they could, I wouldn't be here. So, um, you know, there was one person from a, a part of New Zealand where common sense is still quite common and whose husband is a builder. And, you know, she could just use some common sense to see a serious problem that the design engineer and the peer reviewer in the council couldn't see. Unbelievable. I chose, I chose not to see. Mm. So just uh, one other point, uh, it's often brought up in discussions with my mates, is uh, oh, these new uh, rate earthquake ratings have just got out of hand and, you know, the, the poor landlord, poor landowners or property owners around Invercargill just can't maintain them, can't bring them up to code, there's no money in it, can't get tenants in them, uh, so basically they're going to stay empty for forever. Uh, what's your thoughts about the earthquake codes and the, the re-strengthening that was required under the new um, codes post-2011? 
seems to have had quite a large effect on especially marginal properties around our city. Well, far be it from me to be an expert in commercial law <laughs> and so on and taxation, but don't building owners get depreciation where basically the value of the building is written off over time on the basis that it will have to be replaced. Uh, yeah. Now, um, the first of all, it's it's not about building, bringing things up to code. The, the earthquake-prone building legislation, and I don't agree with it, it's basically just about stopping the collapse of a building in a moderate earthquake, which is defined as an earthquake of one third the horizontal, effectively the horizontal accelerations of um, what you would be designing a new building to. It is not saying, because a building is, is not earthquake prone, it doesn't say that it's safe. It could suffer catastrophic collapse at say 50% of a new building thing. And also people talk about, you know, a 34% NBS new building standard. It isn't that. Because when you design a new building, you have to apply certain strength reduction factors and you have to base it on the lower five percentile strengths. When you're assessing an existing building, you're allowed to take probable strengths. You don't have reduction factors and you're allowed to consider all sorts of mechanisms that we don't allow in new buildings. So when you hear about one third, no, 33 or 34% NBS, it's actually at best equivalent to about 24% of a new building design. And so really, and, and, and again, um, that wasn't introduced after the Canterbury earthquakes. It was introduced in 2004, which is almost 20 years ago. And people have bought, until relatively recently, they have bought apartment buildings and commercial buildings without even thinking about this. And well, you know, Again, I think something needed to be done and, and the strengthening is moderate and I don't, uh, I can't object to it. But the important thing is for people to realise it's not about things being safe or not safe. It's a gradation. And all it's trying to do is prevent total collapse in a moderate earthquake, nothing more. Well, th thank you for that explanation because it's certainly... Uh... Well, it's refreshed. Perhaps I didn't know it absolutely, but it's refreshed uh, for me, the, the requirements. So, yeah. I, and so I wanted to ask thing, John. Do structural engineers, do they carry personal liability insurance individually? Yeah, they um, most, well, yes, they have. Um, you're not, I can't admit to having it, but engineers <laughs> have um, uh, professional indemnity insurance. But the question is, you know, how much do you have and and so on. But the simple fact is, if everyone was doing their job right, we wouldn't need it. Uh, similarly, um, uh, it, you know, the, this thing about building codes and regulations and laws, if the professions and the trades were doing their job properly and ethically, all you would need would be a code to quantify things but yeah. not to sort of lay down the law or whatever. And it just gets so, you know, things are getting so complicated now. And um, the documentation is just getting out of whack. And I think in many ways we'd be far better off by reducing the number of you, you can, in New Zealand, you can just about, because we don't actually have strict 
um, enforcement of particular approved systems, you can basically do a mix and match on all sorts of different things, supposedly in the interests of economics. Uh. And you also can have like umpteen different types of cladding systems with or without cavities, umpteen different types of window systems, and we're a population of 5 million, and yet everyone demands you know, every sort of tap and fitting that you can get everywhere in the world. I think we would be far better off and far more efficient if we reduced the number of permutations and combinations and got things right and did it. For example, we used to have timber-framed houses which had eaves and weatherboards and wooden window framing, and it seemed to work, and everyone knew how to do it, so why not have that as the standard? What you will have now is what might be perfectly adequate cavity cladding systems and different reefing systems and aluminium glazing systems. But you have specifications that are 250 or 500 pages and I cannot, um, and 50 drawings, and I cannot understand how anyone can follow any of it. No. Nah. And as you were saying that, uh, it almost reminded me of, you know, choosing a platter for a morning tea shout, what do we put on, what do we not? And I'd rather the, you know, what's on offer be restricted. But uh, I think, thank you so much for your time today, John. And I think we'll have to get you back another time. We definitely have to, so that we can discuss where the profession has headed. You've told us all the directions where it has not headed. And uh, there is a whole lot of things between climate change, the diversity agendas, and so on, that the profession seems to be excelling at. Yeah, yes, and, um... <laughs> and the introduction, in, in the introduction, I, I accused uh, or made the, the observation, you're the fly in the ointment uh, for some of the the engineering fraternity. Well, um, sorry, before, I, before you go, uh, I think it's important that you continue being the fly in the ointment, John, and putting your case because citizens of this country and investors need to know that that what they construct is adequate and uh all power to you thank you um thank you so. yeah um i think it was at waterloo um napoleon sent a marshal called grushi off with thirty thousand men to intercept the prussians and keep them away while he tried to defeat the british and he was just wandering around aimlessly. And one of his subordinates said, why don't you march to the sound of the guns? Well, what I would say is that engineering and structural engineering in particular can hear the sound of the guns over here. And they actually turn around and walk in the opposite direction to all of this nonsense that we may talk about at some future. <laughs> well, that's a great line. Good, well done. And thanks for coming on, uh, RCR Greenwashed, uh, John. It's been fabulous having you on. And uh, as Jasprit says, we're getting you back. Yeah, right. we look Thank forward you. to this next week. That was a great analogy, John. Thank you. Right. You're welcome. Goodbye. Jasprit Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Well, there we have it. That's the uh, recipe according to John Scarry. Now, whether you uh, value what he said or not, um, I'm actually sitting up on the edge of my chair thinking, gee, we can't have any more building failures in this country. As a person that uh, had a son-in-law who was the second last out of the Southland, Southland Stadium before it collapsed, um, it makes you think about uh, our buildings and our standards. 
and no one wants to add unnecessary costs onto onto the build of commercial buildings or a house for that for that matter but we must build them right and i think uh, that was a very salutary message from john what mm. do you think jasper Absolutely. And I am looking forward even more to the next segment we'll have with John and where we go into what has I especially enjoyed the diversity, equity and all that uh, professional engineers suddenly seem to hold dearer in New Zealand than uh, the professional standards, it seems. Oh, so. yeah, there's a lot of colours in some of their, their um, output, isn't there? I think uh, they've been looking at the United Nations <laughs> SDGs, Jasper, right up your alley. <laughs> one trick pony don't that that is me but uh, i have looked enviously at politicians over the ditch over the tasman oh. over the last two years and been and wondered why we can't find a single one of our own to speak the way mm. some of them do and that's a great segue into our next guest Jasprit hates that word segue, as do I. Anyway, it's a nice intro into our, into our next guest, who is Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation. And of course, I've, uh, like Jasprit, watched him many a time on uh, on television or on uh, YouTube. And he is a very, very passionate uh, orator in the House. And he talks, uh, yeah, as as yeah, as passionately as passionately as anyone on climate, on uh, and on ESGs and all that sort of stuff. So after yeah, the break, after the break, we're going to have Senator Malcolm Roberts. Absolutely, looking forward you to this one. Welcome back to Greenwash with me, Don and Jasreet. And we are thrilled today to have with us the Queensland Senator, Malcolm Roberts, someone who Don and I have listened to for a long time. I call him one of the Fab Five, the five politicians we have uh, 
Senator Babel, Babbitt, Gerard Rennick, Alex Antic, and others speaking up. And it is not often that, in fact, I think, Don, this is the first interview that I, that we are interviewing someone from my, who was born in my motherland in India. Uh, and yeah. and, even, and it was, it was yeah. unique to find that out. It is fabulous to have Senator Roberts on. But, um, yeah, that was a unique find. And another thing, another, I mean, I think a bigger rarity is a politician who has real world experience. So Senator Roberts, you have a degree in mechanical engineering. You've got an MBA from Chicago Booth University, and you have had quite a lot of corporate experience. How did you end up in politics, if I may ask? Well, just a quick correction there, Jaspreet, uh, and thank you for the welcome and thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Um, I have a mechanical mining engineering degree, an honours degree in mining engineering from the University of Queensland and a a Master of Business Administration from the University of Chicago. So I was in New Zealand, working in New Zealand for all of 2005 with solid energy, turning around to mine Spring Creek at at Greymouth. And we loved it, by the way. Kiwis are really uh, down-to-earth people, especially around Greymouth. They they call a spade a spade and they love it when we call a spade back. you know, I remember having an effigy of me burnt in in the, in the local <laughs> park when I arrived because they were undergoing some um, uh, strikes with regard to a new labour contract. You can't, is that what you call it over there? I can't remember. A new industrial agreement, mm-hmm. and they, they burned an effigy of, of me in the in the park. And uh, and when I left at the end of the year, the the mining uh, union president, uh, his name was Harry, I think. Um, yeah, lovely bloke. Um, he came up to me and said, thank you so much for what you've done. You've been really wonderful. We wouldn't have done it without you. So, you know, that they, they're able to take calling mistakes. But I, I finished in, in New Zealand in 2005. Um, they wanted a contract extension, but I couldn't do it for family reasons. And so <clears throat> I came back to, to Australia and I suddenly heard about all this carbon dioxide, which is going to destroy our planet, fry our, oh, sorry, boil our planet, boil the planet, you know. It's going to fry us all. We're all cooked and that's the end of it. And um, and I thought, this is rubbish because one of the things we have to do as a mi- as a mining engineer, Jasper, even though I've spent most of my time in management, I've spent a little bit of time in engineering. Uh, at university, we're taught, at TAFE College, we're taught techni- uh, at, um, what do you call it, technical college, we're, we're taught this about atmospheric gases because one of our responsibilities is to keep people alive underground. Mm-hmm. So we have to know the composition of, of the gases and, and what, what gases are harmful and what gases replace oxygen, et cetera. And so I thought, this is rubbish. Carbon dioxide is almost inert. It's a very, very stable gas. It hardly reacts with anything. It's used as a fire extinguisher, for, for goodness sake, to put fires out, not to create them. It doesn't spark fires. So um, and, and, and there, there are some tests. I won't go into the details, but um, I thought, this is pure crap. And, uh, and and then I got talking to uh, Ian Plymer and he, he explained, he agreed with me. And the more I researched, the more rubbish I found because, you know, when, when, we're, when we're facing thousands of scientists and hundreds of politicians who are telling us that the world's going to end and all the science is there and you realise they're speaking rubbish, then, then you think, hang on, it must be something wrong with little old me. So, so I just kept researching the science for a couple of years and then uh, I found out it was all rubbish. And then I started looking uh, down the rabbit hole and finding out the UN was driving it. And then I found out what the UN was about. And then I found out who was driving the UN. And that's when I came alive on this issue because I didn't know how, how bad the – I just thought the UN was incompetent and dishonest. Uh, I, I now realise it's far, far more sinister than that. 
And um, and so I, I was asked to speak. Ian Ian couldn't make a, an event one night. Ian Plymer, who's a wonderful, wonderful speaker, um, he couldn't make an event, so he asked me to stand in. And on that on the uh, forum was a politician called Pauline Hanson, and and she was impressed with with my speaking. And so she eventually I did a few more forums with her, and then she asked me to stand beside her as a candidate. And I no one expected me to get in. But we had a double dissolution, which made it easier to get in, and uh, and so I got in, and uh, then I got knocked out after about fourteen months. Uh, yeah, fourteen months. I got knocked out with dual citizenship, even though mm. I was the only one who wasn't a dual citizen. But nonetheless, I technically didn't comply correctly at the time of nomination. So fair enough, out I went. But I must have done something good in those fourteen months, which is fairly brief, because I came back three years later and and contested the next election and got back in in an ordinary election, not a double dissolution. So on my own right. So, um, so people appreciate what I, what I was doing in that, just that brief period. So that's how I became a politician. Interesting. We, we didn't even get the quip in about um, the Wallabies losing to the All Blacks over the weekend, but we've got that in now. So I had to put, that, I had to put the slipper on there. Hey, um, well, you know, that's, it- that's because over in your country, it's the religion. Uh-huh. Over in our country, it's the third third level sport behind uh, oh. Aussie rules and rugby league. But yeah, we almost knocked you off. We yeah, all no, almost got it you. Was, it was close. It was close. Good try. Uh, we'll just come over and win the Melbourne Cup this year or something to really <laughs> do a do a Kiwi on you again. Anyway, um, there's a lot of lot of banter between New Zealand and Australia, and it's good healthy stuff. But isn't it interesting how uh, as we open up this interview, we immediately start talking about the big ticket items that are knocking us around, um, climate policies and uh, the nonsense that um, seems to be everywhere, all pervasive, doesn't matter whether it's, um, doesn't matter how you cut it, climate policy seems to go right down to the minutiae of regulations now. And I assume it's the same in Australia. Uh, the issue we often ask is, or the question we often ask is, how how can we hit it off? When is common sense going to 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 hit the the regulatory machine and and back off on all this stuff? It what will only we- start to end, Don, in my view, once the people realise they are in charge of the country. So. I don't know your constitution, your New Zealand constitution. I, I don't know your system of government very well at all. I know you've got a uh, quite unusual by by, by Western state standards um, election process. It's fairly complicated. But uh, our country is a constitutional monarchy, which is not a monarchy. I'm guessing yours is similar. It's not a monarchy because in a monarchy, the king or queen rules. They give orders. They make the laws. They they. They give instructions. But in the constitutional monarchy, it, there's a constitution at the top of the state, if you like. That's the, that's the head of power. And then the, con- the monarchy serves the constitution. They have, they have defined roles, very limited roles, very, very limited powers, and they're there just as a reserve, and, and, it, and it functions really well. So we are essentially a republic, which makes us – and. and our constitution, from what I've been told, is the only constitution in the world in which the people voted for the constitution. And the people who can change our constitution are not the bureaucrats, not the politicians, not the king or queen, but the people. So that puts our constitution is the supreme, is a sovereign a sovereign entity, if you like. It's what governs us. It's we're we're a, we're a republic because we're governed by laws, and only the people can change the basic constitution. 
and and so we're in charge. And every three years, the people elect a, a government. So that means we are over overriding over overseeing the government. And what's happened in our country, like in many other countries, we have uh, the people have fallen asleep. We've we've had a pretty good time in the last 170 years, and we've fallen asleep and taking things for granted. And both sides of politics, and you'll notice this this same formula applies in um, in the United States, Canada, New Zealand, uh, Britain, all countries that came from the from the from the Britons, and um, and that is that that we we have a parliament that we elect. But it's now, it used to be representatives that we elected in a district and in, in the Senate, representatives that come from the states so that each state has 12 senators and that's proportional representation. Now, I won't go into the details, but it enables little parties to have a say or people who vote for little parties to have a say. So what what's happened though is over the years, the the globalists have have taken over very subtly and we have only two parties in each of those countries. Well, New Zealand might have three three fairly significant parties, doesn't it? Uh, two to two in the main, two in the main, okay. and two and two more subordinate, and then right. some and Canada, some, some, minos, Canada, and some minos. Yeah, Canada is two in the main and one subordinate, and Britain it's two in the main, and America is two in the main, Australia is two in the main. So you get either Tweedledum or Tweedledumma. The Republicans and, and the Democrats are now very close. The Liberals and Labor Party in our country are very close. The Tory and the Conservatives are very close. In fact, there's no different. In, in the policies of the Labor and Liberal parties, other than what they tell each other and blame each other for. Uh, and there's, they're lies. There's no difference. They're both two wings of the same, same, uh, same machine. And they're both controlled by party power brokers who are putting in globalist policies. You see the leader of the Senate in, um, in the Liberal Party in opposition in, in uh, the Senate, Federal Senate, is Simon Birmingham. He's a globalist. Uh, the previous, uh, the previous his predecessor, Matthias Cormann, Senator Cormann, was a globalist and became uh, head of the OECD. That's, well, that's, that's what, what's going on. So we've got people. The other thing that's, that's happened, Don, is that, uh, that causes people to fall, fall, fall asleep is that some decades ago, both parties were somewhat independent of each other. And, and people voted either Labor or Liberal. And their mum and dad voted either Labor or Liberal. So they voted Labor or Liberal. And then so on, it was passed on. And then uh, the newspapers perpetuate the myth because the newspapers are owned by the globalists in large part anyway, or the, sorry, the media is owned by the globalists. So they perpetuate the myth that there's a real difference between Labor and Liberal, and the people are conned. We're basically working in a system where we're controlled, not as much as we used to be controlled under feudalism, but that's where the UN and the World Economic Forum and the globalists that, that control them would like to take us back to feudalism so we become landless, we become just working our guts out just to survive, eke out, eke out a living, and everything we produce goes to the globalists. That's what they want, and we're just we're just slaves who are consumers and can prop up their profits. It's it's going to be that that's what they want. I don't think I'll get it, but that's what they want. So that's how it's happened. Malcolm, I've seen you uh, raging in Parliament, wanting demanding answers about how much does Australia pay to the United Nations. Did you ever get a definitive answer there? Uh, not at not at the time, as you saw, just Um I haven't checked that actually. I haven't. I haven't that's a long time ago. Mm. Uh, I think the point of that was that we know it's 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 many hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and we also know that that they don't don't like talking about it. But I haven't been through that that set of questions. Gee, that's mm. something I must chase up. 
<laughs> right. The other thing you said, you know, the constitution and people vote for it and they, they are the ones who change it. Out here in New Zealand at this point, we are seeing a, a systematic creep over the way government is run. We have virtually no opposition to speak of. We have an entire narrative about everything being racist. So now we have a separate healthcare system based on ethnicity. They are talking of uh, it's coming, creeping through in all strands of education, right from university down to kindergarten level. It is coming in literally everything. So in the terms of co-governance, and I have always held that what does co-governance mean? Are we, you know, in a way, are we contracting out government? Are there people coming in who are unelected and so on? And I see a very similar thing playing across the Tasman right now with the voice. But at yes. least you guys are going to have a referendum about it. That's right. And and I think it'll go down. I'm very confident it'll go down, but we, we won't take the foot off off their throat uh, until we until we see the no vote. But um, the most woke state in this country, the most uh, socialist uh, state in this country is Victoria. And mm. the latest poll, I don't know how, how um, significant the poll is or, or who, who, the, who the pollsters, but I just saw a newspaper headline saying that Victoria is now 55% no, 45% yes. So Victoria is that way. That's very serious for the for the uh, referendum, um, the proponents of the referendum. So we're we're delighted with that vote. And that means every state now will be voting no. For the benefit of our listeners, some of whom might not be up to play with what the voice actually is, could we have your uh, you know your insights into what is being proposed for Australia's future? Yes. Um, it was very difficult to find out anything, Jasper, about the voice because uh, they wanted to keep the details secret mm. because before the election, the federal, the, the, new, the now prime minister was the opposition leader and he stood up in parliament and said, we will have a voice, we will have a treaty and we'll have a truth telling. Okay. So he said all three and, uh, and, and, and so that understand that context now with the voice looking pretty tainted because they have hidden the, the details. They've been very, very deceitful about this, the government, um, because the voice has, has been hidden. They're now exposing the they're now exposing the prime minister for his comments about the treaty, which is essentially said it had to come and uh, and the truth telling. And, and so now he's gone very quiet again about the treaty because the treaty is what they want. And that's. In, in as I understand it, you have the Treaty of Waitangi, is that it? Yep, that's our and, version and, of the UNDRIP in a way. Yes, that's right. Um, but as I understand it, international law says that if a, if a country comes in and invades or or lands on another country, um, then and that's, that country has a system of land tenure, which says your land is your land and you pass it on from generation to generation and your land is your land, no one else can come on it without your permission, then they have to have a treaty. They can't just take it over unless they have a war, of course. Uh, and they didn't do that with New Zealand, I understand, because the Maoris were pretty strong. Now, in Australia, we had that system in just a, a few islands in the Torres Strait, which are islanders. They're not Aboriginals. They're a different race. And, and the rest of the country, the mainland part of Australia, no, there was no system of land tenure. So there was never a treaty. Mm -hmm. So what the UN, and the UN is behind all of these things, um, what the UN wants is a treaty to steal our land. I'll give you another example in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's the same I, thing that's happening here. They keep saying yeah. that UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, suddenly for this agreement with the NGO, because that's what I call the United Nations, they are unelected, unaccountable, unwanted. We are changing the entire system of a country. Yep. So, so um, what what they what they want is a treaty to take mm -hmm. away everyone else's rights, to take away every, everyone's rights, including the Aboriginals. They want to take away our, our rights to use our property, especially because when you had the United Nations, several of the senior people have said that their their aims are to put in place an unelected, unaccountable, socialist global government. They didn't say unaccountable, of course, but <laughs> that, that's un, unelected. Um, in, in an unelected socialist global governance. That's what they want. They've said it. They've said climate change has got nothing to do with climate or the environment. It's all about polit political uh, control and redistribution of wealth, which means give us the lot. That's what they're really saying. Um, and, and so, so many other things that have done the same way. It's COVID. Who was the World Economic Forum was recently quoted saying that COVID was a wonderful demonstration of, of how we can, we can take over and, and exercise our control. And how we can manipulate people. I mean, they said it. So, um, so what it's about is about forming that treaty to steal our land. To have a treaty, though, you can't have a treaty between a government and no one. You've got to have another entity. So that entity has to be created. That's the voice. The voice will be um, supposedly 24 representatives of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders around the country. That's ludicrous for a start because the Aboriginals don't get on with each other, for, just like the whites, don't get on with each other from the... There's People in Tasmania don't speak on behalf of people at the tip of Cape York, for example, and then in the north. So it's ludicrous that they could represent. But these people will be appointed. There haven't even been any rules as to how they'll be appointed, if they'll be elected or not. So so we're, we're giving the government a blank slate, which is exactly what the UN does. So... Um, what they want to do, then, then the other thing, I mean, there's so many things you can talk about here. Then the other thing is we had an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders commission in, uh, in the 1990s, 2000s, and it was, uh, it was rife with corruption. Um, they were turning a blind eye to, to the real problems of the Aboriginal communities um, and the murdering of women, the sexual abuse of women, the raping of women, raping of children, murdering of children. Uh, and eventually, and, and, and if you called that out, then you were labelled a racist. So very few people called it out. And then eventually some of the Aboriginal men started feeling shame about them being silent, so they called it out. And then in went the, uh, in went the uh, police force to make sure that the, the law, law and order was kept in their communities. And then it opened up the ATSIC. And everyone said, this is terrible. So they abolished ATSIC. Now, ATSIC was created by legislation in parliament, so it was easy to remove. What the, um, what the Aboriginal industry, and that's the white and black activists, lawyers, consultants, bureaucrats, politicians, academics, what the white and black Aboriginal industry created was a, was a, a, a trough for feeding off. And they, yeah. they, they intercepted the money and they used the money. What they found was they got knocked off because it was legislative body. So they want to enshrine it in the constitution where it will be almost impossible to remove. Theoretically possible, but it will be practically impossible to remove. That's what they want. So that's what the voice is all about. So the voice is about giving the Aboriginal industry control, which will, which will mean it will be totally unaccountable 
totally unaccountable, which will make it even worse for the Aboriginals and the Aboriginal communities, far, far worse. Most of the problems in the Aboriginal community are due to past uncaring or governments that thought they cared and and, and uh, churches that thought they cared, but they really didn't understand, they didn't listen. But then they were that was worsened and entrenched by the Aboriginal industry, which controls things. Now, we've got native title over here, which is a, a system of uh, supposedly a lot of the whites in the cities think that's a system by, whereby we gave them back their land. Well, that's complete rubbish. When you go to an Aboriginal community, the number one problem they have is they haven't got access to land tenure. They haven't got access to land title. And that's what they want. But what happened was the United Nations appears many times in the preamble to the Native Title Act. And so it was a United Nations land grab before, this was in 19... 1990, uh, early 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s, I think. And it was a ruse. It was an excuse to take the land off the owners and lock it up. And mm. so now the Aboriginals haven't got land. So it's the same old trick to, to get control of the land, keep it from the Aboriginal, keep it from everyone else and, and lock things up. I mean, only now they want to put it in the constitution so it's enshrined there and will be impossible to take out and give them complete control. Well, exhibit number one for you to look at is New Zealand, um, Malcolm. Uh, you know, the Australians just need to look here and see the damage that's going on here. Uh, we've got a Treaty of Waitangi that seems to, uh, to use the term, being bastardised by Maori elites. Um, we set up a Waitangi tribunal in 1976, and it's just been a massive gravy train. So we are exhibit number one. Uh, there's some, there are some differences, but yeah, that's... This, I've been watching quite a bit of Australian media and seeing this discussion about the treaty sneaking into the discussion all of a sudden is, is intriguing. But interestingly to me today, I studied your bio and at the bottom of the parliamentary notice, uh, yeah, it's under the Australian parliament, it says at the bottom, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the country throughout Australia and acknowledge their continuing connection to the land, waters and community. We pay our respects to the people the cultures and the elders past and present and emerging. And then it goes on to say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are advised that this website may contain images and voices of deceased people. And I just don't get why that was at the base of your bio. I mean, it's clearly at the bottom of every MP's bio, but um, it seems a bit of an over, overreach to me uh, having that there. It's sort of setting the narrative uh, a bit wide, I would have thought. I agree with you. We, we get it everywhere. I'm welcome to my country every time I land at an airport um, and, and every every ceremony, whether it's got anything to do with Aboriginals or not, um, I'm welcome. Every morning, the first thing that happens is it used to be the Lord's Prayer and then welcome to country. Now it's welcome to country, then the, <clears throat> then the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and a lot of and and some of the Labor Party would like to get rid of the Lord's Prayer, but the welcome to country is a complete over, overreach. It's not accurate. Um, and the the fact is that the High Court ruled in 2020 that I think it's 2020 or 2022 that Aboriginal claim to the land in this country ended in 1788. It was never there was never a system of land tenure in the first place. But I'll have to I've I've just written down. Um, check on welcome to country because I haven't, I haven't, I don't go to my own website. So <laughs> I'm guessing that that's one of the conditions of the, uh, yeah. of, of the, of the use of parliamentary services. But um, I'll check on that because that shouldn't be there. 
it well it's just intrigued me i mean it is like uh, we find it here as well things um get placed in strange places and you know uh Jasper's a councillor now and this Karaki is at the that's a sort of Murray welcome at the start of every every council meeting if council of the mayor allows and most of them do uh so um you know none of us none of us are um uh and well those of us that are respectful of everybody um acknowledge everybody having rights and but they have responsibilities and respect to give back uh, we just seem to be having it one-way traffic again in this country, and I just don't know why it is. But anyway, it's like, um, COVID. It's like COVID. It's like climate. It is just one-way traffic. There's no back, backing uh, evidence to back up these claims. They're just indoctrination, and they're just relentless. So it's it's all it's all orchestrated. This United Nations, this voice push in our country is part of a global push from the United Nations. So so I can't understand even in um, in Victoria. If it's only 55, 45, I can't believe, uh, you know, I, I know I sound like I'm an extreme, uh, though I'll be labelled an extreme right winger. Well, there's nothing extreme in a right wing uh, about me. Uh, but how come 99% aren't voting against um, this, not this voice? I just, it seems unbelievable that it could even be so close. But one of the things with the United Nations, Don, as you're probably aware, is that the indoctrination starts from very, very early in a child's life, and it's relentless. And we've been we've been given the story that the Aboriginals have been treated very, very badly. In some areas, that's the case, but uh, it was through care, and 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 it's it's there's no point in going into the details of it. But people mature, and and, and white and black people are the same. They mature, um, and we start learning differences we start learning the things that are not good about ourselves and we we correct that that's one of the beautiful things about human beings if we're doing things that are hurting we actually fix it mm. once we're conscious of it we fix it and it doesn't matter whether you're black white brown yellow red it doesn't matter that's all, all that's 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 in every human every every race every nation of humans especially the people outside the political class so that that's what we've got to remind ourselves all the time. So the Aboriginals have been hard done by in, in many ways, but they've also had a wonderful benefit of of uh, European civilization coming into this country because their life their life um, their what is it life expectancy was much much lower than it is now. Now in some areas, of course, the Aboriginal life expectancy is very low because. They have been alienated from the from the uh, from the from the land themselves because of because of European civilization. They've been caught up in the crosshairs, if you like, and and that's very sad. But they're not going to be that that's not going to be rectified by having a bunch of bludging um, activists getting in the way and stealing their money, stealing their land. What what we need to do with the Aboriginals is give them the same opportunities we're giving the whites. Mm. Give them their land tenure. Aboriginals are just phenomenal people. That you know, we've got some of the brightest brains in the country are Aboriginals. We've got some of the best sportsmen. The, the National Rugby League. So we will go there instead of instead of uh, rugby <laughs> union. We'll go to the rugby league. Um, the National Rugby League has got way out of proportion representation of Aboriginal um, men in it because they're just bloody good athletes. We've got they they punch above their weight. They're good at academia too. Some some of the Aboriginals are, are wonderful at across the whole gamut of, of arts, sport, the whole thing, industry, uh, medicine, the lot. 
And and so we they just need to be given an opportunity. And that means get the bloody bureaucrats out of their way. Get get the do-gooders out of the way. And instead what we need in this country is not a voice, Jaspreet. We need an ear. <laughs> and that's what I've said before. We need an ear so that people listen. The the activists don't listen. They're just pushed by ideology. They think they know what's good for the Aboriginals. And the Aboriginals will tell you those same activists are, are just stealing their livelihoods. That We've got a program in this country called um, uh, Close the Gap. It's supposed mm. to be a gap between Aboriginal and, and, Australia, and uh, European Australians. Okay, And there is a gap in some places. But... I asked people in the Aboriginal communities, what do you think about Close the Gap? Some of them went, what's that? Mm. You know, and and, uh, and others would say, one of them, an islander, told me this. He said, Malcolm, while ever, the, while ever there's money coming in, there will be a gap yeah. because they don't want the gap to close because they want the money to keep coming, not to the people on the ground, but to the activists and the bureaucrats and the, the lawyers and, the, and, the, the, um, and all the rest of the parasitic people who are hanging off on, the, on this gravy train. They close the gap. While ever there's a close the gap campaign, there will be no closure of the gap. No. So this and it's is exactly the Aboriginal the industry. Same thing in most of the other issues, be it something like, you know, gender and LGBTQ issues. Now, we have advanced a lot more since the 50s or 60s and the attitudes that were held towards anyone gender diverse at that point. But yet, if you would listen to the hysteria around it, you would think they're really hard done by and that marriage equality laws. And most of us don't bat an eyelid at anything of that. The only thing I, I would say as a mother of two young children, the only thing I ever worry about is anything that's on display, let it be age appropriate for a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Don't yep. make them grow before their you know, time. Don't make many adults of them, they're kids. But yet there is money there. There's money there to be had. And now we have in New Zealand, we have uh, the diversity and gender uh, activists who are now also activists for COVID vaccines, also activists for decarbonization and degrowth. Also, somehow they are climate experts and everything. It's like you get an all-in-one package. And it, it never, you know, fails to amaze me how multifaceted these people are. Well, pardon me while I just add... Um... COVID, I've made a list of, of things. COVID, this is the commonalities of the UN. COVID, invisible, undefined, unmeasurable. It's all about dollars and control and the outcomes are inhuman. Climate change, invisible, undefined, unmeasurable. It's all about dollars and control. It's inhuman, some of the consequences of it. The money scam, the printing of money, invisible, undefined, unmeasurable. You get the drift. Mm. It's all about control and and wealth transfer from the, we the people to the to the globalist predators, and gender is the same. It's concocted. It, so many children, and and that's what they are. They're children until they're mm. eighteen. They're children. Uh, so many teenagers, uh, adolescents go through gender dysphoria. I mean, it's not it's not the majority by any means, but it's it's a sizable chunk. That's normal. That's mm. normal for adolescents who are confused. I mean, such hormones swirling through their body. They, they, they're bringing in estrogen, uh, what's, yeah, testosterone, etc. And it's a whole cocktail of, of chemicals flooding a, a child's body. And they're confused and their brain is modernizing and reconnecting. Re, re, uh, um, they're, they're very socially self-conscious, many of them, because they, they all of a sudden get gangly. Their arms take off before the rest of their body and their legs take off, you know, their limbs. And, and they feel awkward and they look awkward. 
um, and and they sometimes can't they knock things over trying to reach for something because they haven't got used to their new limbs and and their the nervous system hasn't hasn't adapted yet. We're we're seeing a significant shift in in a in a in a little child growing into a tall adult within a matter of years, and it's also hormonal, it's also mental, and so this huge shift and things start getting questioned, they start feeling awkward, they start feeling embarrassed, and then they wonder, should I really be a girl? You know, and these are normal thoughts for, for quite a few people. And then what happens is the United Nations, and that's that's what is pushing them. They come in and say, well, Malcolm, you you are a girl. If you say you, you might be a girl, you're a girl, that's it. And, and instead of looking, instead of giving me counselling or support and love, they give me hormones, cut off bits of pieces of my body uh, and give me testosterone injunctions and puberty injunctions and pu- puberty blockers. And that puts them puts me on the treadmill then for a three point two billion dollars industry that is big farm is going to get fat off again. So if you look behind, where's the money? And if you look behind, where's the control? And that's what we see: control and money and the deceit. What people with gender dysphoria should be done should have is love and compassion and be treated as if it's a serious case, treated as a mental health problem because that's exactly what it is even in adults. So mm. in adults, some very, very small per- perception, proportion of people have a very serious condition and, and they probably are better in, in the alternative sex. Okay, we accept that. But it's still a matter of a mental mental health issue and it's still a matter of love and compassion that needs to be given rather than chopping bits and pieces off their body. That That's basically it. And what they're trying to do, again, they're trying to destroy the family. These United Nations, they're all about stealing your property rights because then you've got no responsibility. You've got no entrepreneurship in the country. It's mm. all about destroying family because when you destroy family, people look at the government. The government has more control. It's about destroying religion because that gives people faith and strength so that then people are dependent on government. You've got basically back to feudalism then. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I've got the. I often quote neo feudalism is is all about us, and uh, I think that's what you're alluding to. One thing I really liked in one of your recent podcasts was you said when people sleep, democracy dies, and uh, you know I can't I can't argue that that's just bang on. And I I love the way you use terms like predators because uh, you know predators and parasites and things like you know terms like that they do resonate and. We've all been too soft on the people that are coming uh, at this, as we call it, woke stuff. We've been very, very timid because we're very respectful people. And I think in the end, we are going to have to get a little less respectful and use terms uh, like descriptors, like predators or parasites um, against them. But anyway, well, I think we should just to move cut to, in there. Um, just, yep, sure. Just, just to cut in, if I could, we haven't just become uh, soft on our language, we've become complicit. Wind farms are called wind farms by the United Nations because a farm is a lovely place. It's a productive place. There's nothing productive about a, a wind turbine, nothing. Mm. There's nothing productive about a solar panel, nothing at all, unless you're off the grid. But if you're on the grid, it, it's a parasitic malinvestment. That's exactly what it is. You know, so we, I, I said, I refuse to use their language. So, um, 
So, yep. you know, every, everything. Uh, fossil fuels, it's an, they're not fossil fuels. They're hydrocarbons. They're, they're, compo- they're compounds of, of, car- of carbon and hydrogen atoms. That's what they are. They call fossil fuels as a derogatory term. And and mm-hmm. um, so, some of the other, I'm trying to hard to well, uh, When you're using I, well, the language are, all the time. Yeah, you are right. We're using being conditioned. Yeah, we have exactly. That's it. Mm. And what they're doing is they're conditioning us to use the same language, so we become disciples of of their of preying on people with with the language, you know. So they're they I just call them unless I can find a very good term that people can get quickly. I just mm. call them what they are. So wind turbines, solar panels, that's what they are. They're not renewables. The only thing renewable about them is that they have to be renewed every twelve years or so. <laughs> so we just have to call out the the facts. Oh, what? Yeah, like. Of course, when you have the likes of Guterres come out and talk about global boiling, I mean, it is language that it is it is the words that matter to people. And we do have to do, as you say, call out these nonsense words. And I have watched yourselves and uh, yourself and Alex Antic and others um, sort of ham it up. This, see, if, see if we can get something better than global boiling. Um <laughs> Uh, because yeah, it, the, these things do get into as we just talked about. The young minds are very impressionable, and it is part of indoctrination. But hey, I but, think we but, should. You know, the contradictions. The contradictions in COVID is what woke people up. We had so many young people. When I say young, late teens, early twenties, even up to 35, 40, who were who were conned by the climate scam. Absolutely conned by it. When they saw the COVID come along, at first they were panicking like everyone else. Then they realised this is way over the top. It's hyped. It's exaggerated. It's nonsense. It's lies. There are so many contradictions from day to day, from government to government within their country, state government to state government. So many contradictions that people went, hang on a minute, this is this is rubbish. And that's when people started saying to me, the young people, um, I'll give you a good example. We we um, were very slow to get onto Instagram. We had a very low following on Instagram. And then when I started speaking up about COVID, once I realised what was going on, our Instagram drew, grew dramatically because it was largely young people. Mm. And it got to about 45,000 and, the, and, and, the, uh, and, and Meta capped it and just wouldn't let it go above that. It's now gone above that, just slowly, slowly, slowly going above that. But it shot away from them very quickly. And what a couple of them said to me, um, when I first started posting on Instagram, I would post about COVID, and then every now and then I'd dribble one in about climate. And the climate one wouldn't get much of a fo- much of a um, many many likes. But now, when we post about COVID, but sometimes we'll get we'll get even more likes when we post about climate because people are saying, "I can see what's going on now." And the beauty of that, Jaspreet, is not that I've lectured them. But they have come. They've come along themselves, and they've worked it out themselves. So they own it. If you lecture, people don't own. When they discover for themselves, they own it. And so now they're talking about the climate scam. So, um, so and that's, in our that's case, in, in New Zealand, it also helps that some of our uh, COVID modelers have also now turned climate modelers and carbon credit uh, vendors. So the same, same government <laughs> contractors between, you know, a couple of professors and dames and others, the same ones have now gone into climate modeling. So people, I had friends who could see the COVID nonsense for what it is, but, oh, they were completely on the climate, you know, just dairy farming and all of this is really bad. They now suddenly see it because I think it's a case of once you see one lie, someone lies to me about one thing, I don't trust them about anything else. 
Because how do I isolate a liar from, you know, they lie about this, but everything else is, you know, holier than thou here. And that's what's happened. But uh, Senator Roberts. There's just one, one thing in there, if I could jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're starting to see now is the fear is being is changed. It's no longer the fear in the people who've been indoctrinated with the climate lies and the COVID lies. Mm-hmm. It's now fear in the perpetrators of those lies. Yeah. They're fearing political irrelevance. The UK had a by-election a week ago, I think, um, uh, some, some uh, electorate starting with you, I've forgotten what it was. Anyway, the, um, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, came out against 2050 net zero. Yeah. And he, he got an increased majority. And that is telling. And what we see now is, um, see, before I got into the Senate, very few people would call out the Greens for their inhuman policies, anti-human policies on climate, which are, which are clearly anti-human. But when I got in there, I would call them out and, and they don't like that. And I would, I would give them the facts and they don't like that because they just talk about emotion. Now they can see the people starting to wake up. They are terrified. And so I had a matter of public importance last week uh, and the Greens, there were three or four Greens speaking and they, they just went ape. They went crazy. You know, billions of people are going to die. You're going to kill billions. You're going to die. And, and we're just laughing at them. And, and they couldn't handle it. And, and the media now in Britain is turning. Mm. And that's despite the global ownership, you know. And so uh, global predators who own the media. So what, what's happening is we're seeing a, a dramatic shift and they're losing the battle. And when people come out and talk about boiling, no, people go, it. This is rubbish. <laughs> this yeah. is rubbish. So the more pressure we put on them, the more they expose themselves. It's wonderful. And just before coming on this evening, there was a, a press release from a couple of German stations. So they have snow plows deployed in a German city after a freak summer snowstorm there. So coldest winter, boiling ever. I won't even try pronouncing the name of the city because it's beyond. Well, they, they, be- yeah. They're knocking down wind turbines in parts mm-hmm. of Germany to extend the life of a coal mine. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, about a month ago, I was traveling through where I live, Southland, and stopped somewhere for a coffee en route. And this group of German tourists hopped off uh, their van and started chatting to one of them. And this lady started asking me, oh, what do you do? And this and that. I'm sitting alone. And she said, you know, Germany, she said, we had sanctions against Qatar for its human rights. And she says, now we can, we can't stop buying as much gas as they would sell us. So, you know, being cold and hungry is occasionally the Best reality check ever. That's right. There was a, a sticker against mining. This is back in the 70s and 80s at the University uh, Colorado School School of Mines, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the bumper sticker said something like, "Let the." Bu-. There was a lot of anti-mining sentiment in those times, but it was about the environment, not about climate. Uh, and, and and the bumper sticker. That the, Colorado School of Mines put out, went around ran, ran around America and around the world. It just said, let the bastards freeze in the dark. <laughs> that's it. Mining isn't everything. Everything everything I can see apart from your your face, Don and Jasper, the thing, the headphones you're wearing, everything came out of the ground, either in the form of food or agriculture or sometimes out of the ocean or especially mining. Everything. And mm. what would we do without the steel? You know, the, the steel that's, that's made in this. What would you do without the plastic? And every single bit of steel needs coal. Yeah. Green steel We've is all- talked about, but it's completely brittle and rubbish. And plastic, the 120 byproducts of, of coal and oil, that of coal rather, that, that are, include plastics. And plastics are, 
plastics save us energy, save us effort. They save us, um, reduce our footprint. You know, they have to be disposed of properly, otherwise they're pollution. But these things are wonderful, and it should be me, the the, the person who is um, who is making the decision as to where to spend my money, who determines whether I buy a plastic pen or a metal pen. But both of them need energy, and both of them need mining. One hundred percent, they do. I think it's um, absolutely uh, a key story of as isn't it? Um, you don't get much without the harvest from the environment. You just don't get much. And well, not- the, the best the best friend of the whales is coal. We were using, before we started using uh, coal for lighting and electricity, we used whale oil, and the whales were hunted to near extinction. The the area of of land in the developed continents covered by forests has increased 30% in the last 100 years because we're no longer burning trees to have cooking and for heating. We're using coal or gas or oil or nuclear. I mean, the best friend of the forest is coal. That's what stopped all this chopping down of trees. It stopped the exploitation of animals. You know, prior to that, we used animals or human slaves to do our grunt, uh, do our grunt work. Now we use coal, slaves driven by electricity. And it's just remind. One of the, the the worst, the other scam that I didn't put up there before when I talked about COVID, climate, money, all being invisible and gender, is the anti-human scam. Mm. Coming back to Bob Carter, who I had so much respect for. You know, Bob said to me one day, um, he said, this is the biggest scam ever, Malcolm. I said, no, Bob, it's not even close. So what do you mean? He said, climate is the third biggest scam. Mm. The second biggest scam is the money scam, the way the Federal Reserve Bank controls the money supply, and which might end pretty soon. But that is a far, far more powerful scam than the climate scam. The climate scam just extends their fingers. They said, what's the number one scam? The number one scam is the anti-human scam that's been going on since Malthusians in, in the Club of Rome. And they're basically saying, you are a greedy, rapacious, uncaring, irresponsible. You don't care about the planet. Nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why my, my uh, belief is that I'm very, very positively pro-human because, Don, I, you look like a tall fellow. I can't tell from here, but I'm just a runt. But, you know, when, when we popped out of our mum, we were about the same size right? And we were completely helpless. When a foal is born, well, you'd know this from your calves, when a calf is born, Jaspreet, when a calf is born, within a few minutes, literally, it, it may be half an hour at most, it's awkwardly getting to its feet, shakes itself around, and it's cantering. I mean, humans take two years to walk properly, and even then they're still st- unsteady on their feet. Their brain doesn't develop for, for years, you know, they're dependent on on, uh, on their mum and dad for 10 years now. Okay, so not everyone is a perfect parent. But the fact is that if you are alive and looking at me, I know someone's cared for you somewhere along the line. Otherwise, you'd be dead. Mm-hmm. And that, that same care. We're the only animal species on the planet where if we're fouling our nest and it's not good for the planet, we will wake up to that and we will change what we're doing. We're the only ones that are capable of doing that. And yep. so I see us as enormously um, beautiful creatures. Mm. And, and the other side of it, and a lot of people never think of this, Mal- uh, Malcolm, is um, nothing that's farmed has ever gone extinct. Uh, once you actually farm things, you generally do the right thing by uh, the preservation of those animals. Um there's a whole lot of good things. And I'm, look, it's just heartening to have someone speak the same sort of language that Jasper and I have talked about for the, the five months this show's look, been going. 
the best person to control the, the to, to manage the land to have custodian uh, to be custodian of the land is the farmer the best person because the farmer that's all they have their number one asset is their soil correct jespri even if you're a dairy farmer soil yep. Uh, and yet we're told by the Queensland government here and many governments, farmers let their soil run off and, and, and clog up the Barrier Reef. It's complete rubbish. There's no there's no impact of, of, of farming and chemicals, fertilisers, so, uh, soil particles anywhere on the reef, anywhere on the reef, not even the inner reef close to the, close to the shore. Um, so it's complete rubbish. A farmer does not want to lose her land. That's the most important asset because when you when you retire, you're either going to sell that that land and buy and, and buy somewhere else, buy uh, um, you know something on the beach to live in, or you're going to hand it to your children. You're not going to hand your children a, a wasteland, so you're looking after that. The other thing is a farmer knows deep down that if they care for the environment around the farm, the farm will be in better health. The bureaucrats have no clue what I've just said, no clue at all. Instead, they want to put restrictions in that, that take over from farming and destroy farming. And the United Nations just wants to control it so that instead of eating beef or lamb or pig or chicken, we'll eat, we'll eat slop. Crickets. Mm. Well, with crickets, there, there are several things. One is crickets, one is plant-based proteins, and the other one is, um, which is the most dangerous, in vitro lab meat concocted in, in a lab. That's, that's hideous. Well, you know, Senator Roberts, I... I see more and more people turning around, pushing back at this. I myself, for a long time, I think for the last couple of years, I was despairing of getting somewhere. But this year, certainly, as the economic pain has hit us, it has certainly hit us in New Zealand, things are turning. And I am very hopeful. And I will have to wrap up today. And hopefully, Don and I have not spooked you off enough to bring you <laughs> back at other time. But we are so grateful and I think slightly envious, aren't we, Don, to have some people standing up across the ditch, representatives yes. speaking up. We don't have any. So more power to you. More power Thank to you, you, Malcolm. All right. We're, we're certainly um, we're trying to get a royal commission onto the COVID sort of uh, fiasco here. And hopefully you get one over there. But, uh, you know, how long is that going to take? Um, but there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about today and I wish we had. And uh Clearly, the COVID was the biggie because, boy, you've been stirring up a hornet's nest over there. And it's uh, for people that need to get up to speed with that, um, I'd say get on to Malcolm's um, uh, Facebook, Facebook page and feed and uh, just get up to date with it. It's all power to your arm, Senator. It's it's great to see. Thank Thanks you very much, on. Don. Yeah, Thank it, you so much for your time today. No, you're welcome. It's just It's just my job. That's what I can't get over. It's just my job, and people compliment me for it. But guess who pays me? The taxpayer and the citizens of Australia. I'm supposed to represent them. I use these things and this thing once I understand what they're saying. And and that's that's what's critical. It's representative democracy. I'm supposed to represent the people that put me in parliament, Amen. including the ones that didn't vote for me. Absolutely. Yep. On that note, I think I hope some of our politicians take a feather from your book. Thank you so much, Malcolm. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.